0: Hello, my fellow Westorians. It's another edition of Valar for the World of Ice and Fire, where we hone in on the world building the very rich, rich, rich setting. What's triple rich? Is that... How many riches do you need to get wealthy? <laughs> hmm, I don't know. But it's an amazing... You need four. four. Triple's no big deal. Okay. Yeah. Well, then rich, rich, <laughs> rich, rich setting in which these characters we love exist. George has put a lot of work into his world and so shall we. He wanted us all to have fun with it. And so we shall. Sean, what are you drinking today? What are you quenching your thirst on this fine Easter Sunday? It is Easter, everybody. Happy Easter if you celebrate or just want to shout out the fact that it's a holiday. That's what I'm doing. So, Sean, how are you enjoying this? Rabbit interview? Blood. Rabbit Blood. You are yeah. on
1: point, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> this is a uh, rainbow machine, naked drink, mixed with black cherry, sparkling ice, mixed with watermelon, Mountain
0: Dew. Weird and, and funny, as usual.
1: <laughs> We've got
0: some cool <laughs> shirts today. Check me out. We Do Not Flee, the king's guard. another Fox and Brambles product. Very nicely done, y'all.
2: Yeah, you can find more of uh, her shirts on Redbubble and stickers on Etsy, Fox and Brambles.
1: Right on. Was that originally we do not betray, but then it had to change it because of Jamie? <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, it was we do not flee with an A, like the, the small like biting insects. They don't go in a flea bottom? Right, right. We don't suck the blood off of farm animals and people.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Sean's got a nice shirt, too, today.
0: Timely shirt.
2: He's got... The gang goes to Ice and Fire Con. Oh,
0: yeah. Heck yeah. (laughs) Ice and Fire Con is this weekend, this coming weekend, which is a good time to remind y'all there won't be uh, a live Valor next week. I will be releasing the next Winds of Winter full chapter audio, however. If you're a patron, you've already heard it, but if you're not, well then you're going to have a little fun with that. You get to hear it. Shout out to our friend Nina, with one ltumblrcom She has currently on her blog a cool post about the cloaks, the marriage cloaks at the purple wedding and the symbology behind it. It involves a take from our other good friend, Jim McGeehan, something like a lawyer. They're collaborating a bit for this take. Good stuff. Check it out. That's on Tumblr, Wars of A-S-O-I-F. So say hey to Jim for us, too, if you go over there. All right. This episode was chosen by History of Westeros Patreon members and has coined our new name, the Sarnor rule. We've been using polls to choose the topics each week recently, and Sarnor came in second three times in a row. That seemed like sufficient interest to me, especially because I really wanted to do this topic. So the Sarnor rule be invoked anytime we have an episode get second place three times. doesn't have to be three in a row, but this one did. And we also do voting for scripted episodes for some of the higher dollar patrons. And those, of course, don't come out weekly, but they do come out uh, whenever we finish them.
1: I'm surprised that you really wanted to do this topic, as these because there's hardly any information in the document here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, this might be the longest episode document we've had since Valar for A Song of Ice and Fire. Those, those generated monstrous documents. These are not as large because we, we have more discussion points that we launch into, whereas there was just a lot more specific information written down for VRR
2: for ASOIF.
0: So we're, we have a lot to talk about. Let's get to it. But we have to start with our traditional. Yes, it's a tradition now. That's right. It's a traditional trivia question at the beginning of the episode. The kingdom of Sarnor was known for using chariots from very early times and never seemed to really stop. In later days, they were often richly decorated with precious metals and gems and artwork even. This is in great contrast to the free folk of the frozen shore who also ride chariots but they're made primarily from the bones of what animal? What animal bones are used to make the chariots, written by the free folk on the frozen shore? Answer at the end. And let's get to it. Sarnor has a similar theme as seen in A Song of Ice and Fire in that there is a failure to unite against an existential threat. This, of course, we'll detail at the end. We'll move through this chronologically as much as possible. But, of course, the doom of Sarnor... Uh, Not quite like the Doom of Valyria, but they sure did end pretty thoroughly. Uh, It took a little bit longer, but it was just as certain, just as final. And of course, thousands of years passed between the first city of the Tall Men and their eventual fall. It's a great story. Uh, George often mixes real-world history with inspirations from other authors. You've heard me say that before. And of course, he includes his own incredible imagination, his own expertise as an author. There's always an indeterminate mix of those three basic elements And in this case, it's a good example of learning something along the way here. I often I like real world history enough that I often recognize the parallels. And we have such a great group of people helping and commenting that a lot of times that helps fill in the gaps or at least point me in the right direction. And then I can go do more reading or light research. But of course, as a person born in the West and living my whole life in the West, I tend to know more about European history than other places around the world and does obviously various reasons for that it's pretty normal Uh, but I have fewer aha moments when I read about Sarnor I started looking things up in the reverse order rather than knowing where to start and finding things to look for I had to look at what George did and try to undo it and backdate it to where maybe where the influence was coming from there's a lot of good that comes from this of course when you're looking into stuff like that you broaden your own horizons you you look up history and So some of those discoveries were ancient Babylon, ancient India a little bit. The biggest influence seems to be ancient Iran. The Sumerians, the Scythians, the Sarmatians especially, the Medes, and the most famous of all, Persia. The the Persian Empire, both in its early days and when it became big and wealthy, both apply here. And that's the pattern of these people. From nomadic horse tribes to vast wealthy cities. That's how Persia went too.
1: So let's have our first quote of the day, introducing us to Sarnor. In the southeast, the proud city-states of the Kothi arose, In the forest to the north along the shores of the Shivering Sea were the domains of the woods walkers, a diminutive folk whom many maesters believed to have been kin to children of the forest. Between them could be found the hill kingdoms of the Sameri, the long-legged Gips with their wicker shields and lime-stiffened hair, and the brown-skinned, pale-haired Zakora. Who rode to war in chariots. Most of these peoples are gone now, their cities burned and buried, their gods and heroes all but forgotten. Of the Quothi cities, only Carth remains, dreaming of past glories beside the jealously guarded jade gates which link the summer and jade seas. The others were extinguished, driven into exile, or conquered and assimilated by the people who succeeded them. Westeros remembers their conquerors as the Sarnori, for at its height, their great kingdom included all the lands watered by the Sarn and its vassals and the three great lakes that were all that remained of the shrinking Silver Sea.
0: So we actually see this very early on, not by name. Like maybe Bloodraven or the Blackfyre Rebellions. George had the idea, but hadn't fully fleshed it out. Maybe he didn't give it a name. And it probably wouldn't have been appropriate to give it a name, even if he had it. He might have chosen to throw it in there. But Danny's a young girl, and Sarnor as we'll find out, is largely forgotten. It is even well-known by Maestress in the Citadel, partly because it's so far away, it's remote, a lot of the records were destroyed, most of the records were destroyed. So it also wouldn't necessarily have been realistic for Danny or anyone with her, even Jorah, who was a little more knowledgeable, to know what the heck this was. The cities of the Rhine are more famous, they're on the river, they're more remembered.
1: An example of that is this. The Tigris and Euphrates in ancient times were so incredibly important. To the world civilization at that moment, but now when more people know about the Mississippi or the Amazon, does that make sense? Good point. The, the shifting of cultures and time change how how well things are known. So
0: good point. Yeah, and it's da- so Danny and Tyrion both pass this. Not just Danny, but Tyrion sails downriver, so she does. He doesn't actually get to see this, but Danny, when continuing on east with Drogo's Calysar, this takes them through a lot of what was once the Kingdom of Sarnor. They see ruined cities a couple times. And again, just there's no name attached to them. But we, in this episode, are going to give you some examples. We think we've identified what some of these ruins are specifically. And if not, we'll be able to narrow it down to a few guesses because we have good information on where these things were. We have a pretty clear view of where Danny marched. And that means Jorah and her handmaidens and blood raiders have all seen this too, because and have before, because they came this way the first time. Jorah. I think had been to base already, and her handmaidens and blood riders certainly had. So they passed this way both times. So they've seen these ruins at least twice, maybe multiple times, some of them probably several times. In that long, excellent quote that Sean read us is the Silver Sea, and the Silver Sea was a large body of water that, as it says, shrank until it became just a few lakes and a big river called the Sarn. Let's start with the Silver Sea, It's the cradle of civilization in Essos, and it makes it pretty interesting and a good place to start. Like many, if not most, ancient civilizations, both real and imagined, the people we're diving deep on today started around a river, but it was once a sea. Quote,
2: Beyond the forest of Kohor, Essos opens up upon a vast expanse of windswept plains, gentle rolling hills, fertile river valleys, Great blue lakes and endless steeps where the grass grows as high as a horse's head. From the forest of Kohor in the west to the towering mountains known as the Bones, the grasslands stretch more than 700 leagues. It was here, amidst these grasses, that civilization was born in the Dawn Age. 10,000 years ago or more, when Westeros was yet a howling wilderness inhabited only by the giants and children of the forest, the first true towns arose beside the banks of the river Sarn and beside the myriad vassal streams that fed her on her meandering course northward to the Shivering Sea.
0: Nice. Yeah, that's so cool. And it, it, it basically it gives the same vibe of the Dawn Age in Westeros. Like this is the this earliest is cradle times.
2: Of, cradle of civilization right Boom, here. Yeah.
0: Just like Sean mentioned, the tigers and Euphrates. That was a great point. It's the equivalent, I think, here. And I mean, this is the first of the first men. So it wasn't like it says that it wasn't always a river. But by the time humans came along, it was maybe when children and giants were roaming the land without humans, it was still the Silver Sea. Which is giants, it was a stream. <laughs> <laughs> well, you wonder where it got its name. But this is the region in which the kingdom of Sarnor emerged. All the, the dried up Silver Sea became the kingdom of Sarnor. Well, There's a lot, a lot of time passed between that. But, and now, of course, it's mostly the Dothraki Sea which, as we know, is a sea of grass, not water. But again, it helps the metaphor a bit, the fact that it is called the Dothraki Sea and used to actually literally be one. And that's realistic, as we'll get into a little bit later in the episode. That is how a lot of Great Plains came to be in the first place. Another aspect of the Sarmatian people, I said they were probably the best match that fits super well here, is that they seem to have started as a matriarchal society before changing over time eventually into more... Commonly recognized male monarchies. Here, the earliest portions of the story of the Sarinori people include a group of legendary figures called the Fisher Queens, right? So there you go matriarchal society. And let's have Nina's take here. It says She says it reminds her of the kings of House Fisher in Westeros, just as the first inhabitants of this proto-Sarnori kingdom were among the oldest peoples of recorded civilization, and the Fisher Queens, the first rulers of these first people, so the Fisher Kings were one of the oldest, if not, in fact, the oldest of the first men, royal dynasties in the Riverlands. The Fisher Queens ruled from a floating palace in the midst of the Silver Sea, the large inland sea in Central Essos, of course, while the Fisher Kings ruled from the Misty Isle, perhaps in the god's eye, the large lake at the heart of the Westerosi continent. So there's a really strong parallel here, even if some of the details are, say, lost to the mists of time or just should be properly categorized as legendary, if not mythical. She continues here, just as the first of the Sarnori High Kings was supposedly the son of the last of the Fisher Queen, so today the legacy of House Fisher seems to survive with House Shawnee, which includes a catfish on its arms, just as the fishers had had, below a divided field of blue, red, and green, right? Like, a, which matches the colors of the trident. So that's pretty straightforward. The house strong and, and house tully, other houses make color designations like that. Tully's don't have green, but still. And that's the first, those are the first royals of the kingdoms and rivers and hills. So it's a really strong parallel, really well sussed out there by Nina. I didn't notice some of the Fisher King connections there, but it's lay. Like, on the literary concept of a fisher king, which is a mythological figure, also connected to Bran's potential future, which is a topic for another time. But I think George is playing with the, uh, the notion of that here. So pretty cool, pretty distant, pretty dreamy, I guess you could say. But Sean, here's where it gets more logistical too. Something to sink your teeth into perhaps. Fishing is just pretty straightforward as one of those humanity's first methods of sustenance. I mean, fishing is easier. I mean, fishing really is a form of hunting. We don't call it that. Or maybe it's more appropriately trapping, but trapping is a form of hunting. It just isn't, it's just de- generally called different, but you're basically just trying to catch an animal. It's just this animal's in the water. And if you're on shore, it's pretty safe. You're, <laughs> you're not risking much. Boats, okay, there's a little more risk there. But as far as hunting an animal, a fish, when you're standing on the shore, it's about as safe as it gets. <laughs>
1: It definitely maybe roots you more before there was agriculture, which would definitively root you to a set spot. Oh, good point, yeah. It's still, fishing is still relatively more set than just dramatically traveling around. Maybe there is still some amount of traveling. Maybe the flow of fish might change based on the weather. And as populations around a fishing source grow, might start to outfish it yeah true might need to move or spread out or do something different but you can see how a community who has discovered the ability to fish in a good spot for it is going to grow way bigger than another community that hasn't
0: yeah true that especially if they supplement if it's just a supplement like you said if they live around this huge river or they could just travel up and down hunting and doing other gathering and uh, there's always the river or lake if we're going really far back nearby to fish in
1: not to mention the steady stream of fresh water, oh, yeah. and probably fertile land around. It could be a lot of territory around a river, but yeah, I would think so. The, the potential for travel as well, you know. A right, good point, yeah, and
0: and just knowing where you're at, yeah. having a, <laughs> a place to like, <laughs> yeah. not necessarily call home. Eventually, they may have, but at first, it's just like a very recognizable terrain feature to orient yourself and all that. So. The magical, orient, uh, magical overtones rather, and grandeur of these early legends is not unlike the Age of Heroes in Westeros. Though, of course, keep in mind, this predates humans even living in Westeros. This is, if this is some, something of an Age of Heroes of Essos, it happened well before the one in Westeros. But interestingly, other magical aspects may have a related, if not entirely, common origin. We've spoken a few times, though never with a focus on the Iphikevron, which are the the woods walkers, the forest people that were mentioned in one of the opening quotes just now. Let's run through some simple logic here and see if you all agree. So, Starting off, given that they, in description at least, resemble the children of the forest, they may be of the same species, perhaps a branch, maybe the exact same species with just a different name. Maybe there's just superficial differences like they have darker or lighter skin, minor variations in like hair color, hair texture, things like that. Basically the same minor variations and patterns that occur within real human races, right? This could be just something like that where there's, they look pretty similar, but there's distinct differences. The, the Dothraki are the main source for this description of this species or people. We're not sure what they are exactly. And the Dothraki are far, far younger race than the Sarnori. And Ipakevron is a Dothraki word. So if the Dothraki know of the Iphakevron, then how could it's pretty hard to imagine that the Sarnori don't. They were around way longer, closer to the ancient times when the Iphakevron would have actually been around. Right? That's not it's really hard to fathom that they didn't know these people or no. Unless know the
1: Dothraki them. made them up. <laughs>
0: I hadn't thought of that one. Good one. (laughs) I had
1: not considered
0: that. They made them up. Yeah, there were forest people here. They were really
1: tough. They were real tough badasses, but we took them out. Americans know about elves, but the Greeks didn't even know about elves. The Greeks don't even know about about elves? They're more ancient than us, yeah.
0: (laughs) Whoa, don't they know about elves? The Sarnori are known to have wielded sorcery, too, at least on a small scale. We don't get a lot of detail. Perhaps a greater amount than... We're aware of, but it wasn't enough that could stop them from the Dithraki. It wasn't like they weren't able to like launch lightning bolts at opposing armies or anything. We haven't seen anything like that in any of Westeros history in any place, though. So that's not a surprise, is it? But it would be a really compelling and I'd say satisfying connection to find out that the, or at least to have some confirmation or at least to keep the idea supported that the first men eventually learned the magic of the children and the first men in Essos, the ones whom the Westerosi first men descend from, they also encountered and learned the magic of the cousins of the Ifekevron, which would be the children of the forest. So maybe a similar pattern of humanity learning magic from the different species of children of the forest, which the Ifekevron won. That would, that would be similar to a lot of fantasy traditions where, Again, to mention mentioned elves, elves taught humans magic in a lot of different traditions. Like I think Lord of the Rings started that. And well, maybe it wasn't learned by, maybe it wasn't elves that taught humans magic. But anyway, that is, a, it's in the Witcher and other spots too. I don't know my Lord of the Rings. The Lord Dragon of Prince. Well. Okay.
1: newer. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. So there's definitely other ones out there. It's, it's a fairly common one. Humans getting taught magic from some elder race. That's, that's not a, a new thing by, by any means. What if the children aren't just cousins, but descendants of Iphikevron? The children are like a younger version. Iphikevron are the truly older ones. Maybe they all emerged from the Silver Sea, right? Long before they took to the forests. Hey, we all come from the water, right? Maybe they do too. They're children of the forest, but they had to... Maybe they didn't start there. (laughs) Children of the water that became children of... Adults of the forest. Children of the water. Yeah. (laughs) No. And, and and speaking of water magic, eh, right, the, the Roinar, it's hard not to think of the a great people destroyed that lived along a river that, that reached really high heights of civilization. I, I think the Roinar were, were nicer people, but still, <laughs> there's some parallels here. So it could be water magic, right? Similar concept that we've tossed around in so many places, Sean, right? The, the, the idea of magical energy is there to be tapped into. You may call it different things. You may... Manage it differently, but it's like an elemental thing water magic, fire magic like it seems pretty well supported i mean it's it's not proven, but it's it's a working idea, don't you think?
1: yeah that's my sort of i don't know take interpretation or whatever is that there's there's different ways for some core magical element to manifest itself, whether it's in a religious way or the interpretations of the religions of the world or or the the physical location or culture that is tapping into it or or learning or believing in it in one way or the other. I can easily see that maybe in George's mind or some author's mind that maybe there's two different magic sources and different groups tap into them in different ways. But even if there's only two or two instead of one, it still manifests itself in a bunch of different ways from there, usually related to, as you you usually point out, like the nearby elements, snow or volcanoes or rivers or whatever it seems to be right that's the
0: it makes sense that that'd be the thing that they eventually got involved with of any form of magic was around for them to be involved with it would be that element that they're closest to
1: avatar and the, the airbender series ah. the, there's four main elements earth air fire water right but like in the desert the earthbenders are sandbenders so there's swamp benders or a mix of water and earth but everything basically revolves around those four but there's different variations of them there's Bloodbenders, uh, or like the dark uh, waterbenders, cool.
0: and so on. In, in the Mistborn series by Brandon Sanderson, there's, they're all allomancers, which is they ingest small amounts of metal and burn Oh, Oh, they do say like
1: aloe vera. Oh. <laughs> aloe vera, yeah.
2: <laughs> well, they pa- use that that's a afterwards. It, yeah. it makes
0: their skin really rough, so they do need the aloe vera afterwards. <laughs> you ingest certain metals, and if you have the ability to, you can channel it into magic. And it, the type of metal determines the type of magic. And there's some people that can only do one and then there's a really fancy people that can do multiples and it's pretty neat. (laughs) So yeah, this is definitely an idea that's out there that gets used by fantasy authors in different ways and it's pretty cool. Like you get versions like this. It's extremely vague. And not known. Or take Brandon Sanderson, where there's like charts that tell you, it tells you exactly, OK, platinum does this. This one does this. If these two are combined, it does this. It's extremely well known because there's like schools and stuff that people have figured it out. Yeah. So and that makes sense in that setting. Yeah. And, and again, this relates to the Roinar. Again, Roinar water magic, water wizards or what they had. They, these even could be directly related in terms of descendants. If this was the cradle of civilization and some early humans learned water magic and then those people migrated out elsewhere. Well, the Rhine is really close by. And if they're like, hey, we already know water magic. Let's stay here. This is an even bigger river. It's really easy to imagine something like that. People are migrating, looking for new homes in the early, early, early days. As we've talked about before, they're probably not going to go really far. If they find something nice nearby, why would they keep going? Just,
1: Let's live here. Hmm. A lot of times also rivers are an obstacle. Like yeah, it's true. really hard to get. Like nowadays we take it for granted how valuable bridges are. Yeah. You just drive across in thirty seconds, but that might have taken like a month to get your family across a river to find a point to cross to carry all your stuff, and it's uh, <laughs> it, And once you do, a lot of times that's where a lot of settlements come from—is a day's travel from the water or something mm, like
0: that. Yeah, and, true that. And you're at that point hits even harder here, Sean, because we're talking about the Rhine, the the biggest river, right? I mean, and the Sarn, which is our subject river, is pretty darn huge too. Right. Really, really big. So something kind of a fitting, especially in a fantasy setting for given in the real world, there's there's a lot of times holy reverence given to places where, you know, that that are life giving, Uh, whether you worship the river that your society depends on or something worshiping like where people think they came from or having a reverence for it. It's similar thing here, but there's an actual magic attached to it the magic of the first humans, right? That water magic carried forward into the world by other people that knew how to wield it. That's, there's something really cool about that. I like that. It's, it's so distant, but grand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I
2: tend to feel pretty strongly that the Royan are, I mean, really, it seems like, all of civilization is descended from the Sarnori and the Fisher Queens to a certain extent, but I do think that there is a direct connection between the Sarnori and the Roinar. Personally, I think there's great evidence in the naming conventions that we see between the Sarnori cities and the Roinar city-states. See, we have the Roinar city-states of Sarhoy, Nai and Sarmel. Yeah, right? with Sarnaf
0: like, and the Sarn.
2: Like, I, it like seemed really obvious <laughs> Sari- to me. Personally, yeah. that, that there's, an, there's a, a connection there. That
1: S-A-R is all over the place. You're right. People of the Roin are called
0: Roinar. Yeah. Right? Yes. 100%. S- S- Sarnor, Roinar, something that different, right? But yeah, um, you got
2: places like Arnor, Arnoi. Just the name just all sounds so similar. Yeah, so for it, sure. it's
0: really true. And And as well, if the Silver Sea was there, like if it hadn't fully faded before humanity started to live around it, Sean was asking right before we started if the Roin and the Sarn connect. They may have one time long ago. They don't currently. But go back far enough, I bet they did. They may have just all been the Silver Sea, which maybe that sounds really huge. But as you'll see in our next subtopic here, IRL inland seas, there's nothing unrealistic about that. Let's talk about a good model for the possible inspiration for the Silver Sea I'm going to do like a like a like an episode of Crime Stoppers, you know. The inspiration for the Silver Sea is the Western Interior Sea, aka the Western Interior Seaway, aka the Cretaceous Seaway, aka the neo bryan Sea, aka the North American Inland Sea. Be on the lookout for it, call <laughs> Crime Stoppers. Um so this was 300 like 33 to 140 million years ago and it bisected North America in two. So yeah, huge freaking sea here. It turned two land masses were the Media and the Appalachia. And the Laramedia is basically where the Rockies formed in Appalachia. Well, that that's self-explanatory. It's the Appalachians. It stretched the, it connected the Gulf of Mexico to the Arctic Ocean, y'all. Whoa. But at its deepest, it was only about 3,000 feet deep, 900 meters. That's not deep at all for something that stretches across a whole damn continent, right? So that's just like hard to imagine. Almost said hard to fathom, but I think I used that joke before, (laughs) (laughs) on like the same (laughs) lake joke or something, but it gradually dried out, formed smaller bodies of water. We're we're still talking about the the Western Inland Interior Sea, rather, and it created places with really cool names like the Sundance Sea, another evocative name, but long gone. And then some of these smaller bodies of water themselves vanished. Like they become we're talking again over 33 to 100 million years ago. So we've got a lot of time for bodies of water to form and go away. And it left a very abundant sea life. There's some really incredible creatures that have been fossils that have been found. The largest freshwater like eel thing has been discovered there. And it would be similar to the Silver Sea explains a lot regarding its place as a cradle of civilization in Martin's world, right? It, It receded the Western Inland Sea, formed a place like the prairies of Canada and the Great Plains in central U.S. They became vast grasslands, like I said at the beginning Like the Dothraki Sea is now, the Silver Sea turned into the Dothraki Sea. Same thing happened in in the U.S. and Canada and places around the world. Now, the difference, of course, in in North America is they didn't have horses back then. (laughs) Well, they did exist in Eurasia, and they did have horses in Essos long back. So let's take a quick look at Eurasia. Vast inland seas existed there as well. The Black Sea, the Caspian Sea, the Aral Sea, Lake Ermia, and Narnak Lake were one lake once. Well, not a lake. It was the Paratathy Sea, which stretched from north of the Alps all the way to Central Asia and Central Africa. That's hard to... I keep wanting to say fathom. You know, <laughs> can't, can't help you know, myself. it's not
2: just my Asia, it's East, all of our Asia.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it's my Asia. <laughs> it's not your Asia. <laughs> but let's not leave out Africa because they've got some awesome additions to this topic as well. East Africa has the African Great Lakes the largest of which are Victoria, Tanganyika, and Malawi, which we've talked about briefly before. They used to be one lake, they became three lakes, then they became one lake, then they became three lakes again. And that's where a lot of the world's African cichlids come from. I have two African cichlid tanks down in our basement. They're great fish. And those lakes comprise 25% of the world's unfrozen freshwater, those African lakes. And most of them are rift lakes, if you recall. We talked about rift lakes. That's when the Tectonic plates separate, and the water just rushes in to fill that gap created by it.
1: Pretty cool. A good setup. A lot of those things you're talking about were things that happened before humans existed, much less history of humans. But I wonder, in in Martin's world, if any of these... Are there people that knew or were alive at the time that the Silver Sea existed? I do wonder that as a waterway. Anyway,
0: I feel like the children did, and the giants, perhaps as well, probably did, because the children. All accounts seem to be that the the giants and children are of a similar age in the world, and so I would imagine they were there, but maybe not people. people But even still, you don't
1: necessarily. You still think that's more because those shiftings of the geography happened tens of thousands of years ago, not because the children and giants are a million or more years old, right? Yeah, well, maybe both. I mean, it is possible. Like, the
0: children could be a million years old. That wouldn't be that strange, like, using real world history. I mean, there were Neanderthals a million years ago. It's not, not that strange. So I could believe that. I, I don't know. It's not one thing we can, we can sit down and say with confidence. But it would make a lot of sense. I, I think I would lean that way. If someone's guess how old the children have been around? I would say more than a million years.
1: If someone said, guess how long ago the Silver Sea existed, what would you
0: say? Oof. Given this stuff about from the real world, how long ago these things faded, it, would, it might have to be millions of years gone. But maybe not. Maybe it dried up more recently. That, it's certainly possible. I mean, again, like we we have to keep repeating ourselves when we say our own history taken as a whole is a sample size of one. Mm-hmm. Like we do have many different inland seas on Earth and we can see the patterns within. But that's on Earth. <laughs> right yeah <laughs> this is not earth it might like a slight variation in gravity or in the at- like seasons seasons yeah. or the atmosphere having different minerals like it probably isn't super different or because there are humans
1: the moon i've brought this up before but like our it's it's our world wouldn't be like it is if it wasn't for the moon it's yeah. it just the right like distance and orbit that it turns the the mantle the 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 molten core of the earth which gives us a magnetic field which deflects solar rays, which otherwise would kill, you know, we would all, it would destroy yeah. DNA molecules, you know what I mean? It wouldn't
0: have formed in the first place. Yeah, yeah, you're right, yeah. you're right. It really is quite amazing, all the...
1: It stabilizes right. the the axis and the orbit, which gives us seasons and et cetera, et cetera.
2: Regarding the length of the Silver Sea's existence, Nina points out there does seem to be a cultural memory of the Silver Sea as a single unit, what with the Fisher Queens. So it's possible it's relatively more recent than real life seas that have disappeared.
0: That's a really good argument because the reason we know about the Western Inland Sea and the Paratethes Ocean is archaeology and paleontology, which, as we've said many times, isn't available here. There's no Silver Sea archaeologist <laughs> that we know of. I mean, maybe there was yeah. during the peak of Sarnor. Maybe that's something they cared about. They wanted to understand their history. And maybe that's where some of that info comes from. But Nina's right in suggesting that it's probably more recent because of that factor, the, the memory of it. Yeah, I don't think Neanderthals probably had memory of the Paratethys Ocean, whatever their word was for for it was. Because I don't think Neanderthals existed back then. Mm, 33 million years ago. No, that's too far. (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs)
1: Uh,
0: So now the real world is subject as it is to things that we aren't aware of. Like science has uncovered a lot about the way the world works, about how our history works, meaning like natural history, not even human history. That too, of course. But I'm talking natural history only at the moment. There's so many things we haven't yet discovered, but there's one thing that we can be pretty sure will never happen in the real world, which is that an author will make a mistake and that will erase a natural feature in the world. (laughs) So (laughs) that brings us to our section called The River Overwritten. Yes, bodies of water and other natural features are subject to a type of cataclysm not found in the real world. (laughs) Indeed. So when George first wrote Kingdom of Sarnor on the map he gave to the author who drew the maps, whose name I forgot to write down here. It must be here somewhere. Anyway, George wrote Kingdom of Sarnor on, handed over to the guy who drew the lands of ice and fire. But what happened was he accidentally covered up the Sarn when he wrote Kingdom of Sarnor and the lands of ice and fire came out wrong and the world of ice and fire app came out wrong. So they're both wrong. Michael's map behind us, Wrong. Sorry. It's also wrong. It's right everywhere else, as far as I know, just the Sarnor area. And it's not that wrong. It's just the river's a little off. And some of the ruins are in the wrong places. This is true for all of them. So again, main edition books, all wrong. The only place you can find the right one is the TV show. How random is that? The TV show has the correct Sarnor map. Why, would you, you might be asking, both why do we know for sure it's the right one and why does the TV show have the only one? Well, because George submitted the the same thing to the TV show without the thing written over the river. So it came out right. <laughs> and, the, uh, and the Lands of Ice and Fire guy didn't have to figure out what was intended. Also, when the world of Ice and Fire is describing the procession of Sarnori cities, the order and the description of where they're placed fits the TV show map, which we don't have to call the TV show map. It's not the TV show map. It's, it is given by the TV show. But it's George's map that he submitted to both. That one came out correctly. Didn't get through the process without mistakes the the difference is that the river goes straight south from the mouth of the shivering sea and then cuts east basically with all the rivers following it until it ends at a collection of three lakes and you'll see various other versions that have it going south or cutting the river cuts north sooner or just a variety of different versions that aren't quite right. So it's not important to go through the ones that are wrong. Rather, it just seems like we can save a little time and tell you which one is the correct one and to always look for that one if you are looking.
1: Worth noting, by the way, it's similar to the pronunciation of names in the real world or the real world. And the world that is real to the characters that we're reading about those maps are probably not all accurate either. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. Like the, some maester in the citadel or, or someone in King's Landing probably has a map of Essos and is probably not right. They probably don't have the rivers and the dimensions correct and some city names are wrong or whatever else. Absolutely. One of the earliest
0: historians in the world was Herodotus. And it's interesting because Herodotus had a reputation for a long time of just people thought he was making stuff up. Like some of his stuff was accurate, some was wrong. Some people think he's a little bit a bumbler. But history has brought him back around as actually, no, a lot of this was more accurate than we thought. Some of the crazy things that he put in there actually turned out to be accurate. They just were, didn't sound like they could be true <laughs> or they were just what people believed at the time. It was accurate as to what people thought, even if it wasn't truly real. So Sean brings up a great point. There were some maps where he drew, he he talked about places that didn't exist, Herodotus. So that's one example of, yeah, those that wasn't real. But people believed these things were real. And so he recorded them. And that's true. Like you have maps that are un- inaccurate. Like in today's time, yeah, it's another thing. We take bridges, use that as an example. We take maps for granted. They're, they're all accurate. <laughs> you know, we're sad yeah. like these extremely, I mean, they're not perfectly accurate. The world maps are often inaccurate because of showing two countries too large, sometimes too small. And that has a variety of effects on how people view the world. But other than that, world maps of today tend to be
1: pretty accurate. Uh, so, yes, yeah. they're more accurate than they used to be because we have satellite imagery and stuff mm-hmm. and uh, things are more standardized and homogenized. And but it is sometimes still askew just because of the nature of the warping of the world when you try to make it flat. But also the propaganda, I guess. Yeah. You know, yes. a, a country wants to make itself seem larger. It, it was a little bit of humor and uh the King and I, the, the map of Siam that was being taught to the kids, like Siam was like the size of Asia. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's also just like where things are placed, like relative to other, like where the center of a map is, right? We always have, North America is always, is, is often so centered with Europe, like the Atlantic Ocean is centered, Where's Hawaii, we're not, we're not the center of the world. We're, we live in our part of the world. Anyway. So think about how far Sarnor is from Westeros. It's really far, but that's where Danny is. I mean, this isn't, it is really far away, but that's where she is. That's where she starts. And in fact, that's where she is now. She's on her way to,
1: on her, in the Dothraki Sea. It's also where Tyrion is. Yeah. Tyrion and several Jorah, many characters. Yeah, they're farther south, but they're still
0: that far away, right? It's this general area that far. So this part of the, of the continent is a big part of the story. So, it makes sense that the information would be less accurate the farther east she goes. Like, she goes even farther east than that. She goes to Vase Dothrak, which is, I think, the farthest east anyone goes on page. But we'll see about that. Obviously, Melisandre and people have been to Ashai, but that's not on page, that's in their memories. So yeah, the actual map, if we're going to frame things and put, we'll do like a centering of things, north-northwest of the kingdom of Sarnor, which was large, so we're sort of basing it on the center, which would be Sarnath. It wasn't really the capital, but it was where the high king ruled from, but they, they, they were independent. We'll get into that part later. So north-northwest is the Shivering Sea. Northeast is Omber and Ib. Ib, of course, is an island, but they have some land-based territories. East and southeast is the Dothraki Sea. Of course, it wasn't called that back then, but that is what it is. We can recognize it that way. Straight south would be Slaver's Bay and Valyria. Southwest would be Valyria and Volantis and the southern portion of the Rhoyne. Straight west is the forest of Kohor, northern Rhoyne, and the Axe. Now, of course, the kingdom of Iphikevron will also be to sort of east, northeast, basically, but farther along. Now, the, as far as actual people, one of the things that Shea said here is connecting to the Roinar that makes a lot of sense is just what they look like. They have a similar like skin and eye color, close enough anyway, to, to guess that they may have been related. They call themselves the Tagaez Fen. I don't know how to say that. Tagaez, Tagaez, I'm not sure. T-A-G-A-E-Z. Another nice A-E name in there. To gaze. To
2: gaze, the to, gaze, gaze yeah, to gaze, Ben. To gaze, yeah.
1: <laughs> so here's a quote giving a general description of their appearance and origins. Quote. Long of limb and brown of skin they were, like the Sakura, though their hair and eyes were black as night. Warriors, sorcerers, and scholars, they traced their descent to the hero king they called Huzar Amai, the Amazing born of the last of the Fisher Queens, who took to wife the daughters of the greatest lords and kings of the gyps, the Simurai and the Zakora, binding all three people to his rule. His Zakora wife drove his chariot. It is said Simur wife made his armor for her people were the first to work on iron and he wore about his shoulders a great cloak made from the pelt of a king of the hairy men. Whoa. <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that
0: hairy men bit, that's a little creepy because the hairy men, we're not entirely sure what they are. We talk about them in our When Giants Roamed episode with uh, Amanda Crowfood's daughter. It's not clear whether they were a race of giants or something in between the, the giants and the Ebenees because the Ibanese are very hairy and the giants are very hairy. But if they were like remotely humanoid, then this guy's basically going Bolton here. <laughs> <laughs> like we the skin of his of an enemy. And I was like, whoa,
1: that's pretty hardcore. This whole thing here is very, I use the term conveniently symbolic. Mm. Like it's, I, I imagine this is just a myth of the uniting of these lands and these peoples or whatever. It makes sense to have a king marry the three daughters from three different groups of people and their bloodline gets... To trace its roots to the working of iron and the so on and so on. It's Garth on. Greenhand,
0: all the different daughters and so yeah, yeah it's a similar kind of things. Instead of marrying them, while he married, he just had them kids with different women. And yeah, it's a really similar ideal. Being the first, being born of the Fisher Queens, it's the same kind of what Nina coin it? Mythological propaganda. Yeah, very similar. There's going to be more examples of it coming shortly here. Let's let's talk about the the first, the implication that they are the tall men, which is an interesting concept. In the real world, in the ancient world, the tallest people were the Gravedian peoples. They were mammoth hunters, and they lived from 33,000 to 22,000 BC. They averaged six feet tall. So this shatters your image of ancient peoples being shorter. Most of them were shorter, but there are obviously variations. I mean, we're talking, again, 22,000 BC, these people died out. They they were around 11,000. They didn't die out. They just scattered and became new peoples, basically average six feet not low end, not tall and that's average pretty wild native americans of the plains uh, the ones who rode horses were the tallest in the world in the 1800s they were taller than europeans of that era people think of native americans as being maybe a little shorter in stature that's because of reservations because of the disease and lack of nutrition and basically being in what especially in the early days were basically like outdoor concentration camps
1: and propaganda too i'm sure yep more of that you're right absolutely but like when we make a movie of the Old West, the the main white guy hero isn't a four foot eleven yeah. with talking to the six foot six Native American. It's yeah. the other way around, You're right?
0: They pick a small guy as the villain, small Indian villain, big tall handsome white guy. Yeah, that's right. Nowadays in the modern world, the tallest people are the Dutch, the Croatians, the Bosnia Herzegovinans, and the Montenegrins, which are all they all have Gravettian DNA. <laughs> so it all just. It all comes back to that.
2: Hmm, interesting. I would have thought there might have been some like Polynesian or Samoan, like something like that. But but perhaps they have too many short people throwing it all off.
0: Yeah, I guess maybe. Yeah, because they might
2: have hot, bigger extremes. Right. The ranges
0: way. might be larger. I didn't yeah. look at that. I didn't yeah. look at ranges, but yeah, just is this is average height. Yeah, yeah. average. Yeah, yeah which yeah, you're right. Um, yeah, like the Samoans might be some of the just
2: biggest, biggest. and smallest, like and say, like mixed together because they have some very small folks too in, oh, yeah? in those okay. cultures. Yeah, for sure. Like they can be some small ones, but yeah, that's it, interesting. It's a, it's a
1: pretty small culture, but I'm pretty sure, I, I don't know if your research is that thorough, Aziz, so I'm pretty sure the tallest average culture is the NBA. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That <laughs> <laughs> is a culture, so
1: yeah. <laughs>
0: well, you got me there, and you're um, right. What could possibly be taller? What grouping of people. <laughs> wow, yes, indeed. Now, what a fine race that is! <laughs> very, <laughs> a very athletic, very. <laughs> so the those three races were mentioned there: the Zecora, the Gips, or the Gips. I don't know how to say it, and the Samurai. Let's talk about them briefly. The Zikora, it just says they're brown-skinned and pale-haired. That's cool sounding. I mean, that's a, vaguely... Is that drow? Isn't that what the drow look like in, in D&D? Like brown-skinned and pale-haired, which George said he didn't want to. He almost did that for the Valyrians and then changed his mind it, because I they were be wrong, But
1: I, I think the drow are more like dark gray, like charcoal. Oh, you know, okay. And brown. I, that's my okay. vision Okay. Anyway. I think you might
0: be right, actually, now that you mention it. Anyway, the Zakora are the ones we know the least about, but they apparently look the most like... The Sarnori, like that's the Sarnori look. They have that more traditional look, apparently. Whereas the Samurai and and Gip look was more, I guess, less common, I suppose. But these are the three major ethnic groups. So The Gips were from the World of Ice and Fire, it says they were long-legged and wore lime-stiffened hair and wore they carried wicker shields. That was a feature of many Eastern armies. Remember, at the beginning, I said Iran was. A major influence in the peoples of Iran and many of the peoples I suggested were Iranian peoples Sarmatian Scythian Persian those are all Iranian the many eastern armies of of the Alexander's time ancient Greece they in that relative same area 500, 600 BC carried wicker shields into battle, including the very famous Persian immortals inaccurately portrayed in the movie 300 but they did exist we don't know modern modern People don't know how effective wicker shields are, but they must have been pretty good or they wouldn't have just keep using them. I, I, the one theory is that they were a technique that developed on the grasslands, like a thing between horse riders. Like it was good. They were good at catching missile weapons. Maybe not great at stopping a, a sword, but they didn't have swords then you know this is where it's ancient we're talking pre-swords we're talking spears javelins sharpened sticks pointed sticks clubs clubs, yeah so like a club maybe isn't that effective against a wicker shield or a wicker shield rather isn't that effective against club perhaps
1: but it's still more effective than no shield i think yeah that's true and we got to keep in mind it's not like it just shatters on impact it would block a solid right it wouldn't
0: shatter it would give a little that might that might even help keep that in mind too y'all that you're comparing it to a wooden shield, a lot of ancient wooden shields would be pretty frittle. Frittle? Brittle <laughs> as well. So yeah,
2: like fragile, fra- yes. yeah. I think you're right. <laughs>
0: fragile and brittle. Uh <laughs> together like that. Yeah. So we, we a lot of those weren't as strong as we might have thought either. A lot of them were really thin. You know what just nominal. You think
2: of? The, the lime stiffened hair. What's that? It makes me think of uh, like, of the different Slaver's Bay peoples, like the Giscari and yeah. whatnot, because of how they use waxes and oils for their hair to like, shape it.
0: Very similar. You're right, because that's, they were doing that to shape it in animal, like horns and things like that, which yeah. is exactly the same here. But of course, lime instead of oil or, what ha- or lacquer or what have you. There's a, a coin has been found depicting the Celtic war leader Vercingetorix, showing his long hair streaming stiffened with lime. It was a common enough thing for a lot of Celtic warriors to do. Now, Celtic, of course, Celtic warrior is a very, it's like saying first men. There's, Celtic is a very broad term. But lime was used by a lot of Celtic tribes to bleach their hair, made it stiff, and they could shape it. A lot of times lion shaping was what they were aiming for.
2: Yeah, oh, it's a mane.
0: It's a mane. Yeah, it's a mane. And it, so it bleaches it, and it makes it straight and hard. It's also disinfected. It gets rid of all lice mm. and, and any sort of creatures that live a which... Back then, what if you don't have as many tools for, you don't have soap or, or you don't have like good modern soap? <laughs> they had things like live. Anyway, the point is, this seems to be a Celtic thing. There's been other artwork with with lime stiffened hair that's been found descriptions from Roman authors of that. So that seems to be the influence there
2: someone brought up like or or they spike it and i just want to say my visual now of all these people being punk as hell
0: yeah lime stiffened (laughs) green hair yeah yeah,
2: exactly the green spike mohawks
0: and stuff (laughs) yeah this is lime white lime not not green (laughs) like the fruit So the Samari were real people. George put a Y in instead of an I to make it slightly different. But the Samarian, and he writes writes at C-Y-M-M, IRL, it's C-I-M-M. So they were driven out of what became Scythia by the people who are now or were then the Scythians circa the 8th century BC. They're basically like a proto-Iranian Thracian ethnic group. They first tried to take Armenia when they were driven out of what became Scythia, but were stopped by the Assyrian king Sargon. Sargon, there we go, mm -hmm. Sargon. They first, and so they they moved to Anatolia, which is Turkey, eventually, and settled there for a while until they were, well, I'll come back to that. This is a reference to Conan as well, because Robert E. Howard, writer of Conan, took the Sumerians and used a different version of them to make Conan the Barbarian. Conan himself is Sumerian. They're known for smiths. In Robert E. Howard's world. Conan's father was a blacksmith. And here we have Essos, the Simer people. The Samar people are the first in the world to work iron and the ones who made Huzor and I the amazing, his armor, his famous mythical armor. And the Sumerians were also really tall.
1: <laughs> so there you go. Lots of connections. I I was... My mind went a different direction. I was thinking of the Sumerians oh. that are basically modern Iraq. That's right by, yeah. Same Persian area. Yeah, yeah. you're
0: totally right. Yeah, that's, that's really close by because I mentioned Babylon earlier. Babylon's in Iraq, so that's, that makes a ton of sense. This connection is even more important because in, in real life, it was the Sarmatians who in turn displaced the Scythians, <laughs> right? The, it was the the Sumerians, displaced by the Scythians, displaced by the Sarmatians, and the Sarmatians weren't displaced, they were destroyed by the Huns. And the Huns, of course, are a major influence on the Dothraki, who eventually destroyed the Sarnori and their combo of Huns and Mongols and other steppe people. Also like the Sarmatians, the Sarnori women fought alongside the men. Some people, a lot of historical traditions believe it is the Sarmatians who are the source of Amazon legends, legends about the Amazon warrior women that are often told in Greek stories. So that's pretty cool. Got a nice, the the old triumvirate of George, real world and fantasy influence comes together very well there with uh, the Sumerians and the Sarmatians and all that. Let's talk about Huzor and I more specifically here, the legendary ancestor of all tall men, descended from the Fisher Queens, married a member of all three tribes, as we said. Like Sean said, it binds them together for in unity. Uh, Nina says it's interesting that the tall men sort of combined all the peoples Huzor and married into, brown skinned and chariot-driving like Sakura, tall like the gyps, iron wielding like the Samara. Yeah. Really fits nicely. And polygamy seems to have been a thing then, right? He marries three wives. I mean, there's a lot of ancient societies that did that, but Persia had that very notably. Persia had polygamy. It started off as just multiple wives. And eventually when the Persian empire was at its height, they had just full blown massive harems. It's really just absurd. Uh, slavery isn't directly mentioned. I wouldn't assume it, but I would guess that it probably exists. They probably did have slavery, but it's not explicitly mentioned. So maybe they did. not I don't know. What would you guess on that, Sean? What do you think? Definitely. I think definitely. It hopefully. may
1: not be. We distinguished one time the difference between slaves existing in a culture and a culture's economy being based off slave labor. Right. I think it's probably not an economy based off slave labor. But every freaking culture ever has always had slaves of one sort of another. It's, yeah. I mean, someone could probably find some random reception. I'm like, okay, fine, you found a random reception, but it's the rule. Yeah, especially
0: like these large kingdoms. It's hard to imagine. It never. It yeah. never
1: conquering kingdoms. Yeah. yeah. What do they
0: do with the people they conquer? Just let them, let them be? Like, you'd like that yeah. <laughs> to be the truth, but it probably isn't. <laughs> Here's another take from Nina before we move on to a next, the next section. She says, interesting that Yandel describes them as, quote, sorcerers and, quote, scholars, in addition to warriors, but doesn't elaborate on either aspect. It's probable that most of it, most if not all Sarnori scholarship to the extent that it was written, and at least some of it was, given the huge library is known to be at Salosh by the Silver Shores, one of the ruined cities. It was destroyed during the fall of various Sarnori city-states and may have even been partially destroyed before that. If any of Sarnori's works had made their way to the libraries of Valyria pre-doom, there would have been some of that, but then would have been destroyed by the doom. So too bad. Likewise, because the Sarnori were largely wiped out as a people with the exception of the inhabitants of Sas, any oral tradition or cultural memory would have been severely curtailed if not died out as well. There wouldn't even be like refugees to tell these stories because even most of them were killed. Still, it would be interesting to know what scholarly concepts were most popular among the Sarnori, what concepts they might have first developed that were later discovered or rediscovered elsewhere in the world. And again, we keep coming back to it. Cause it's so cool and compelling. What kind of magic they practiced. Was it water magic or was it some sort of other element that they drew on? Or is this element model just completely wrong in the first place? <laughs> Let's talk about the gods of Sarnor. We don't know much about those either. Again, it's one of the things lost to history, but there is physical evidence. We know where a lot of them ended up. Here's a quote from Danny Four, game of Thrones.
2: Beyond the horse gate, Plundered gods and stolen heroes loomed to either side of them. The forgotten deities of dead cities brandished their broken thunderbolts the sky as Danny rode her silver past their feet. Stone kings looked down on her from their thrones, their faces chipped and stained, even their names lost in the mists of time. Lithe young maidens danced on marble plinths, draped only in flowers, or poured air from shattered jars. Monsters stood in the grass beside the road. Black iron dragons with jewels for eyes, roaring griffins, manticores with their barbed tails poised to strike, and other beasts she could not name. Some of the statues were so lovely they took her breath away, others so misshapen and terrible that Danny could scarcely bear to look at them.
0: Jora tells her that those last ones, the misshapen and terrible ones, are from the Shadowlands. But the ones that are so lovely that took her breath away, the the lithe young maiden dancing on marble plinth draped only in flowers, stone kings looking down from their thrones. Now, the Dithraki have destroyed a fair amount of peoples, but if we had some stats on that, like Dithraki destruction stats, Dithraki destruction data, the DDD, if we had that, <laughs> it would likely be That the vast majority, if not most of everything they destroyed, were Sarnori. If not the majority, certainly more than any other nation. Most of the vase this, vase that, that the Dothraki have named ruins are Sarnori ruins, which it stands to reason then most of these gods are Sarnori gods that were pulled from there. The black iron dragons with jewels for eyes, eh, probably not Sarnori, but maybe. That probably came from Asaria, that ruined Valyrian outpost that's actually pretty close to the Sarnori kingdom. It's the closest Valyrian city that no longer exists that is connected to Sarnor. It's even connected by the Valyrian roads. That would be a place that could have had some black iron dragons. That would make some sense. The roaring griffins, I'm not sure. The The beasts poised in the tall grass, that could be a Sarnori thing, a beast in the tall grass, the grasslands type of thing. What do you think, Sean, what are these, how do they, How would you categorize some of these? Which of these stand out to you? Or what? just in general, how does this, this passion strike you? It's pretty cool, huh?
1: Yeah, I, I hadn't thought to think about the clues of what each of them might represent or where they might've come from or the similarities or differences. But I, I just in general thought it was a good representation of the, destruction of the dothraki it, and and a visually awesome I don't know example it's something to imagine it's something to blow Danny away or any anyone coming upon it a lot of times when we talk about these sort of historical conquerors and conquering nations that I, when I was a kid i I always thought of like these characters I don't know Napoleon or Alexander Caesar I thought of these like great men and all their accomplishments but nowadays I think of these terrible men and all their destruction <laughs> yeah i <laughs> know <different> right <laughs> viewpoint on it yeah <laughs> that's similar yeah that's uh, that's
0: totally how i would say it too yeah like when i was growing up reading about history i was like so fascinated by world war ii and just not all aware of just all the just didn't frame all the destruction and death properly it was entertainment to me and i'm like now i'm like it's not entertaining <laughs> it's, it's yeah, awful it's
1: important to yeah, learn. yeah it is important it's to learn troubling. Yeah. yeah but
0: it isn't it's, just, it's not that's not appropriate <laughs> <laughs> maybe as a kid it was fine like i'm not gonna uh, you know get myself for that kids are kids i'm canceling my i'm canceling 15 <laughs> year old disease yes <laughs> it was terrible
1: <laughs> on some level this is maybe a point of pride of the dothraki but uh to me it should be a point of shame you
0: know? yeah right it, it, and it's a religious thing this thing we'll, we'll talk about when we get to the dothraki their whole thing is they they put them before the mother of mountains the mother, that's their chief deity and so they're bringing those gods there to bow to their god they're, there's this very physical representation of how their god is superior to your gods like yours is worshiping ours it's at our feet the feet of our god so it's like oh yeah well damn <laughs> hardcore But there's a huge number of possibilities as to what types and variety of Sarnori gods there could be. Later on, there's a quote we'll read that refers to the, quote, hundred gods of Sarnor, which sounds like a lot. And Well, it is a lot. That's a lot of gods. But we're talking about a people that existed over thousands of years and were fairly independent within their own kingdom. Like It's the kingdom of Sarnor, but as we mentioned, there are all these different city-states that had independence. Maybe they weren't as independent early. Maybe they were various phases of connectivity. Then there's the pendulum swings back and forth and they f- there are some there's periods of great unity and periods of distance and then back and forth there were such a long period of time lots of things could happen in there but either way it would make sense that there'd be varieties amongst the gods and, of different times especially as an empire that it's called a kingdom but it's basically an empire because it includes all these different peoples and different peoples would bring their own gods to the table and as long as people aren't telling each other who to worship there's a lot of room for both, just like in Valeria, right? We saw that with Valeria, the freehold, the freehold was like, yeah, we rule the crap out of you and tell you what to do. But gods, that part we're pretty, we're pretty loose on. You can go ahead and worship what you want. Which is, again, as we mentioned at the time, a relatively a f- somewhat common feature of empires is to allow religious freedom, whereas a lot of times it's different on a smaller scale when you have a kingdom. But we needn't get back into that. Just needed to restate it to set the stage. Let's move on to our mid-roll here couple of questions, shout out or two, and then back to the cities of the Sarn. Want to make sure you all are well aware of the growing bonus episode catalog we have over on Patreon. You can sign up at patreon.com slash history of Westeros. The most recent episode is the Buildings of Brandon, a companion to the Brandon the Builder episode, but also works quite nice as a standalone, while the, Buildings of Brand, well, the Brandon the Builder episode focuses on the character The Buildings of Brandon focuses on the structures and how they were made and how that could relate to what happens after A Song of Ice and Fire or at least the end of A Song of Ice and Fire. We also have episodes on Gagasos, the 10th free city, the city of blood magic, uh, the Red Kraken. And the next episode up in our Patreon catalog will be the Winter's Widow, Joanna Westerling, the woman who stood up to the Red Kraken and led the West against him. Pretty cool, pretty cool. Dornish Dame says there's a reference to clan mothers in A Storm of Swords, and Osha says she's of the Free Folk as her mother and her mother's mother before her, suggesting maybe matriarchal clans among the first men of the Free Folk still exist, or at least are recent enough to have been remembered. Yeah, great point. Yeah, clan mother, that's a very... Straightforward title. There's not many other ways to interpret that other than a leadership position. Maybe they're not the top level. A lot of times you have tribes that have sort of ruling bodies, like, group isn't just one central authority.
2: Yeah, and matriarchal societies make sense a lot of times, and especially in these proto ages, just because. You can prove someone's your mother. Yeah. a lot more easily than you could prove someone was your father. And there's you can a, actually track that.
0: And there's a reverence to the fact that women are basically magical, that you can make people. Yeah. <laughs> people come out of you. I can, it still blows my mind to this day. <laughs> I can imagine ancient people were still pretty wow people come from, you know, like, you have a reverence for life and things that give life. Well, that's women. That's what they, they do that. <laughs> like, it's right there. <laughs> you, know, you don't have to, there's blotties of water. That's amazing too, but heck, yeah. <laughs> this is shorter scale and much more present and visible. So, yeah, let's, let's uh, shout that out, right? Now, uh, Dornish Dame also says this sounds a bit like how the Starks united parts of the North, such as when they married the daughter of the Marsh King into their line. Yeah, the whole triple marriage thing, yeah, that's super, really common real world thing. George borrows that, just, Uniting families, giving them a, sh- a seat at the table as a way to broker peace between these most powerful warring factions and say, okay, look, we can all benefit from this. Look, we won, but we're going to bring you into the fold and let you have some of this power, even though we've taken a lot of your power away, et cetera. That kind of thing certainly happened in Sarnor as well. Comment from Palavan says, if the grasslands tribes and later the Sarnori kingdom is where the first men came from originally, maybe some of these gods were brought in Westeros as well, like mists, the griffins, the storm gods, et cetera. Great point. Yeah. I mean, we saw the Griffins and the, and some of these guys, these god statues. That's why some of these like Durandan and the, the storm gods that he so-called warred with and Garth Greenhand. And yeah, maybe those were actually brought across. Maybe Garth Greenhand was a figure in Essos that's been forgotten, but is still remembered in Westeros. Things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Great point, Palavan. Okay, folks, let us move on to the cities of the Sarn. As we said at the beginning, Danny passed a lot of them. Uh, as mentioned recently, the Valyrian roads in the southern regions of the kingdom exist, connecting the city of Asaria, now known as Vase Kadach. Kohor, which is the closest of the free cities to where Sarnor was, used to be 10 times wealthier because of the nearby, quote, gleaming alabaster cities, shining lakes, and fertile farms. Trade with the Sarnor made them rich. It was like they were part of the trade network that made Sarnor itself rich within itself, and Kohor were so close by that they scooped up a lot of that, had a lot of their own trade goods to offer, being in the forest of Kohor with all those cool like timber and cool pine cones and lemurs and <laughs> whatever else trade goods they had. Pretty cool. The Saranori cities seemed to were competitive with each other as independent city-states, but they also seemed to specialize, like filling niches within the Saranori kingdom to create a greater whole. Here's another grand evocative quote.
2: Their gleaming cities were strewn across the grasslands like jewels across a green velvet mantle shining beneath the light of sun and stars. The greatest of these cities was Sarnath of the Tall Towers, where the High King dwelt in his fabled palace with a thousand rooms. Eastward rose Kasath, city of caravans, Sathar, the waterfall city, at the juncture of two branches of the Sarn, Gornath by the lake with its canals, Salash by the silver shore, city of scholars with its vast library and painted walls. Downstream, where the Sarn turned north, the prosperous river cities Rathalar, Hornoth, and Keith <laughs> served... Sorry, Keith, yeah. yeah no, like, <laughs> Keith. <laughs> and Keith served the ships that plied her deep blue waters. Here, too, stood Mardosh, the city of soldiers, renowned as Mardosh the unconquerable. <laughs> At the delta, where the Sarn splintered, and... Flowed into the shivering sea. Could be found the port cities Soth to the west and Saris to the east.
0: Man, that really feels like Tyrion going down the Rhine, like re- relating all the ancient Roinar cities and their specialties and their pink marble. Or, I think
2: they sound similar. Uh, yeah, like they just like waterfall cities. Like one of the one of the Rhoinar cities is known for waterfalls. For Here we example. have another one. Yeah. You're
0: totally right. Yeah, you're 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 keying in on these connections. Is there's a lot of little point and go. Okay, that's similar. That's similar. That's kind of similar. And there's so many reasons for the similarity. Again, the proximity of these races, the proximity of their regions, and similar upbringing, similar attitudes, similar look. Now, yeah, the Roanar were geography. Yeah, the Roanar were brown skinned as well. I mean, that that fits. Um, at least it's a basic similarity, but it's notable. Yeah, um, you
2: mentioned the black the, the black hair and black eyes thing, but I just want to highlight that again. I mean, I think it's notable to say black eyes specifically.
0: Yeah, that's not super standard either. Yeah, yeah so that's, that's a notable similarity, right? So Kassath, city of caravans, it says. Obviously, that's a, a sign of lots of trade, widespread and going long distances over land. And from Sarnor, if you're looking at the map, you can, you can imagine there's so many different directions they could go They could go... West to the Free Cities, to Kohor, south to the Rhoyne, all along the Rhoyna cities, south to Valyria, to Slaver's Bay, east to the more mysterious lands that we know less about, down to Karth, through the Bone Mountains, across to Yt. I mean, there's a lot of possibilities there. Sathar, the waterfall city, as I just said, that's uh, evocative and reminds us of the Art. Gornath by the lake with canals. Hmm, that sounds pretty amazing. That's that's one of the farthest out, closest to the what's now the Dithraki Sea. Salash. You know, I Sorry?
2: just wondered. You know, we have this, you know, now, I just realized we have Nath, Nath at the end at the double A. And we have all these Sar Nath, Gor You think the Nathi? Do, do you think they have a root as well? Then.
0: No, you never know. Like, I hadn't thought of that. I, I, it's I, pretty similar. Know. I think so. Yeah, I think Two it makes it, sense.
2: Yeah. I mean, again, I, I, I keep saying, do you think these people have a root? And then I'm like, wait, I guess I think everyone really has a root to the sign like <laughs> or I think about it. <laughs> but it seems like another direct connection, especially when you think about names and like coloring and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, and like some... and, and it's, it's kind it, of like
2: Nathi are the, the combination of when the Sarnori and the Children of the Forest and the Iphikeperon, like, bred. Oh, they're you know? a different
0: version of the Kranichmen, like a, Yeah, maybe a like they're of, like
2: the men of, of Essos. Well, yeah, yeah like, that's my, yeah. my theory here.
0: That makes sense. Yeah, it'd be like the, the Nathi were more like if the children merged with the brown-skinned race and the... the yeah, yeah. It yeah. was just like a white-skinned race. Yeah, basically.
2: Yeah, that's kind of what it seems like.
0: That's cool. That's neat to think about. And there's such, such a closeness with nature and yeah. yeah, that's been apparently been present for so long. And yeah. Uh, so Gornath by the lake with its canal sounds pretty neat. Salash by the Silver Shore. Oof, that's really evocative. City of scholars. It's on the lake. It's the one Sarnori city here that we mentioned that's not on the Sarn. It's, it's on probably the edge of what they think was the Silver Sea. It's a Salash by the Silver Shore. That can't not be Connection, right? That's got to be a, re- a similar reference. So maybe that's where they think the edge was or something. Vast library and painted walls, this place had. Just, oh, man, it was the old town, the citadel of, of the Sarn, basically. The Sarndiddle. Uh, and, yep, a sad thing. It is amazing how sad it is to lose that, even though it's completely fictional. It wasn't actually ever written. We didn't really lose it, but it still hurts, doesn't it? <laughs> It's like all that literature, all this fake literature lost, all this fake history lost.
1: No. <laughs> you think it's a Library of Alexandria equivalent?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a lot of the Library of Alexandria is just is, a lot of unknowns about it. But basically, yeah, there it was a center of knowledge that was destroyed or fell apart or both. And this seems like Salash was inspired by by that to some degree. Sarnath of the Tall Towers was this, in the center, in the center of the river, the center of the Sarnari Kingdom, and was the seat of the
1: High King. As the capital, it has its own quote. Even in the Seven Kingdoms, the glory of Sarnath of the Tall Towers was celebrated, and Lomas Longstrider included the palace with a thousand rooms amongst his nine wonders made by man. Today, however, the kingdom of Sarnar is largely forgotten. There are many and more in Westeros, even students at the Citadel, who know little and less of its long, proud history.
0: So, yeah, there was the, the one that Ashaya pronounced Keith, which it could be Kith.
2: I should have said Kith because Keith just makes me laugh. Yeah, or Kith, like, maybe yeah. I don't know.
0: K y t h. Say it how you want. Hornoth, city of the horny. I mean, ship another shipbuilding <laughs> city uh, like k- like Kith, Keith, <laughs> Rathalar, same. Mardash the Unconquerable, which Shea laughed at when you said that name, because or when you read that name. Because
2: they were conquered. Clearly
0: they were conquered, but they <laughs> yeah. were the hardest to conquer. They at least, you know, sort of lived up to their name. They were conquerable. But they, what it was, the City of Soldiers, the Saris to the east of the Sarn at the mouth on the on the east side and south on the west. Saris used to fight the Ibnys for the regions. So they had a long-standing ancient war against them. To control the mouth of the river
2: do you think they were often sorry about <laughs> they, that they were sorry
0: about that yeah. <laughs> but here's how you remember which is south and which is east. sar is sar east and southwest <laughs> ah. <laughs> southwest southwest airlines was used to exist <laughs> over there until the Dithraki came today South is the only surviving sarnori city there's twenty thousand tall men still living there Tall men and women, I assume. If it's all men, they're, they're really screwed. Uh, small, port <laughs> with, <laughs> small port with white walls. Uh, it does still, again, connect to the Valyrian roads. Trades with Ib and Loras to this day. I kind of doubt it's going to come up in the story, but it's interesting to know that it's still there. So if anyone ever writes future stories, RPG, maybe just in the far future when HBO's still making new TV shows about Game of Thrones 10, 20 years from now, they are be like, let's do Sarnor. And then we'll get something like this. We'll get to see that or who knows? Well,
2: you know, if we do like the sea snake exploring the world uh, TV series, which is one of the, the Actually, concepts, that's a great point. Yeah. You know, he, he could easily go up. I mean, I, I think it would make perfect sense if he would go up to Ebb. that he would, you know, see South or check something.
0: out South and see what's there. Yeah. You try to buy some old artifacts from them. He's rich. Yeah. So let's take a look at Daenerys three, at game of Thrones. We already saw Daenerys four, which he's at based Oathrock. Here's on the way. We get another description of some of these ruined cities that we can be pretty sure are Sarnori, quote.
2: They crossed the rolling hills of Norvos past terraced farms and small villages where the townsfolk watched anxiously from atop white stucco walls. They forded three wide placid rivers and a fourth that was swift and narrow and treacherous, camped beside a high blue waterfall skirted the tumbled ruins of a vast dead city where ghosts were said to moan among blackened marble columns.
0: So Nina did a little work here. Let's go with her takes. The Kalsar crosses the upper ruin in the Darkwash, but from Daenerys' journey in the lands of Ice and Fire in the world of Ice and Fire app, it looks like it also crosses tributaries of the Sarn at least twice. Maybe the one that's mentioned in this quote that says it's swift and narrow and treacherous. That could be it. Danny journey also appeared to take her just north of Yali Kamai, which is formerly Sathar the so-called city of waterfalls maybe the Kalasar that maybe that natural waterfall they camped by was one of those waterfalls that fit and that gave the city its epithet then the vast dead city where ghosts were said to moan amongst black and marble columns the fact that it was a vast dead city might be the Yali Kamai, might still be Sathar, the same waterfall city, or it might be Vojor Sambi, formerly Kassath, whose Dothraki name means the broken gods for these temples and statues cast down by the conquerors. Or it could even be what's now called Vase Kewo or Kuwo, which is Sarnath itself, the tall of the tall towers, which Dothraki now call City of
2: Worms. I like the idea that it was uh, Kassath, the city of caravans, because they were themselves a caravan coming through. <laughs> Oh, they following there, around. traveling, and, oh, you know. I just think that oh, this is nice.
0: That is a good call. Very good idea. Y'all, if you have ideas on which is which, send them our way. And we'll, we have a wrap-up episode coming in a few weeks to retrace our steps and, and cover questions that we missed, m- cover mistakes that we missed, bits and pieces here, things that got cut from episodes because the episode was too long. We got a lot of good stuff. And yep. it's a perfect time for us to catch up on your comments that apply to episodes that have that are already in the can.
2: Yeah, it's a good this yes, definitely good to highlight that this is your chance if you've been trying to get us to talk about something that we just keep missing every week then then send us another email and remind us.
0: Yeah. Now, let's briefly return to the concept of real-world influences. Remember we mentioned the King Sargon of Babylon, again the sar prefix just looms large there. The city Mardash Sounds a bit like Marduk, who was the chief god of Babylon, defeated the leader of the Anunnaki gods, Tiamat. You all remember Tiamat from D&D, and Tiamat's a real world Kind of reminds
2: me of the Dash Kaleen, too, because it's I, mean, I don't know, I, I, don't I think know. a lot about these, these, these languages. I'm so That's curious. a good point,
0: Yeah. Tiamat was a primordial sea dragon. Who was a sea storm and and Mardok was a storm god and god of judgment and other things. Mardok was around for so long that he got attributed a lot of different aspects, like Zeus and uh, lots of these ancient gods just kept getting more and more like titles. (laughs) Like Danny, just keep getting more titles. (laughs) Mardonius, also similar to Mardosh, was a key Persian general under Xerxes, the Persian emperor who saw the Persian Empire at its greatest height and was also featured very inaccurately in the movie 300.
2: And (laughs) is our cat.
0: And our cat, Xerxes, yes. The most important Xerxes of all. (laughs) The Kassites are people from that same era who lived another Iranian people. And that sounds a bit like Kassath. I get the Sath and the Kass together, but in the other order. And Essaria, that Valyrian city that has Valyrian roads that connect to the kingdom of Sarnor, sounds a lot like Assyria and Assyria was a neighbor and constant trading partner slash foe to Babylon. So, yeah, there's some pretty good fits there. Now, earlier you brought up Nath, Ashay. I'm so glad you did that because I already have Nath researched here briefly. Nath is an Indian suffix meaning Lord. Mm. There's actually a lot of Indian suffixes that mean Lord. Aziz (laughs) is an Arab name that means Lord. (laughs) So, yes, a lot of things mean mean Lord. Now, Lovecraft says he came up with the name Sarnath on his own. And he probably did, but it's it's a coincidence because it's also a city in India. There is a city in India called Sarnath. Boom. <laughs> How about that?
2: <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things where sometimes you come up with on your own. Sometimes it's in your subconscious real yeah. deep. Like I, I have, my name happens to be an example of that, Ashaya, because my dad said he had a dream. Where I came and said my name was going to be Ashea. That's that's why I'm named Ashea, is that he had a dream. Well, my dad's a hippie who has studied a lot of Sanskrit. He's Jewish, so he studied Hebrew. And Ashea is a word in Sanskrit and Hebrew and Vulcan and a bunch of other things. So clearly, that got in there. So maybe Lovecraft had seen the name Sarnath at some point. He
0: might have, yeah. Huh. Now, of course, Lovecraft was, like, super poor. and But my buddy, he went to the library. You know, yeah. Public library. You never know what he learned there.
1: I got to say, it reminds me
0: of Sauron. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay. Mm. Sauron. Yeah. He's a little, 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 put a little bitterness into it. Sauron. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's the lime (laughs) getting in there. (laughs) Sauron has lime stiffened hair (laughs) or lime stiffened tongue. Maybe. (laughs) Lime
1: stiffened uh, eyelashes.
0: (laughs) Imagine that. That would be painful. Yeah. Yeah. Let's put bleach in our eyes. Yeah. That sounds good. So we've talked about the individual cities. Let's talk about it as a whole. The Kingdom of Sarnor, the title of the episode. That's this current section. Let's get into that. We've talked about the lands and the ancient history. We've talked about the people and the cities and some IRL R- 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 influences over the time Cities formed. It, it's a, more appropriately called a confederation probably, but whatever, semantics. It, it's a kingdom of sorts. And here's a quote to describe that perspective, that attitude. Here we go.
1: The Kingdom of Sarnor, so-called, though it boasted two score rival kings, was amongst the world's great civilizations for more than 2,000 years. Yet much of what we know of them comes only from fragments of their otherwise lost histories, most notably the summer and winter annals, and records of them from Carth, Slaver's Bay, and the Free Cities. Sarnori traders traveled to Valyria and E.T., to Ling and Ashai. Sarnori ships sailed the Shivering Sea to Ib and the Thousand Islands and Far Masovi, Sarnori kings warred against the Quothi and the old Empire of Geese, and led many of a foray against the bands of nomadic horsemen who roamed the steppes to their east.
0: Mm-hmm. So all the big names come up there, right? Yeti, Ashai, Lang, Valeria, Thousand Islands, even a few that we haven't heard much of. Far Geese as well. As, that's that's not an uncommon one. The Quothi, yeah, like like all the big names, right? That's a lot of global trade and wealth. I mean, and as you said, it says they have surnary ships sailing all over, but it seems like most of it was land-based trade. They're in the center of the grasslands. Sure, they could sail down the river and then sail out into the sea and go around. But really,
2: can I say we're that's going, no
0: way to get to Valyria?
2: <laughs> on the subject of like of uh, Sure. Do you think of Moscovy? Do you think of Russia? Yes, yeah, okay. 100%. I just, just want to mention that. It's
0: also fitting, like, because, in the like, real world, like, Russia would be a little farther and east. And yeah, yeah. So, like,
2: the kind of culture. Anyway. Of,
0: like, Iran. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah they, Iran.
2: Away? they went to Russia. Okay.
0: Yeah. One day when we do, like, a like a full Essos thing where we look at it as a big hole, uh, we'll talk about that one because it's too small of a category on its own. But that's when, that's when uh, places like Moscovy and Nefer will come up. So a lot of these nations are really distant. I mean, Et is mentioned. Like the overland route to Et, we mentioned earlier, that goes through the Bone Mountains. The sea route would be even longer. I mean, maybe it wouldn't take as long, but it is a lot larger distance because you got to go all the way around. You got to go west to go east. You must go west. <laughs> You've Got to sail all the way around Essos, all the way around Valyria, all the way through the Jade Gates. I mean, that is wicked long. Like multi-year journey, probably if not at least a year, I don't know, but a long dang time. (laughs) So this is an idea I want to reinforce because it's true in real life as well. Modern historians have discovered or rediscovered, because obviously people at the time knew what they were doing, had trading networks far larger and more distant than had been believed or assumed by modern historians. We're, We're learning now that, I think I used this example before, the Bronze Age was all throughout Europe and so many other places, right? But bronze, you need to make bronze. You need copper and tin. And one of the only places tin existed in all of Europe was in England. All the tin everywhere that was being, all the bronze being made everywhere across Europe had to use tin from England. So that just proves there was a trade network. Like how it's impossible for it to have happened any other way than trade. So here we see again, just really ancient, vast, distant trade networks. Now, these are a little more civilized people, but but we can... F- Imagine that even before they reached these peaks of civilization, they were still trading really long distances when they were still, some of them were still nomads. Well, the ones who had settled in cities, the ones doing this super long distance trading, but we don't have to assume they were high civilization only when they got to this point, although it is maybe what helped them get to that point.
1: Along that same line as East, I think that the, the, the barbarians, that the Romans were conquering, quote unquote barbarians, they had borderline industrial production of wine. They had all sorts of roads and transportations mm. and trade. And uh, they're very advanced networks of cultures, civilization, trade, government, on and on and on. We called them barbarians and went attacked them so we could get their gold. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was, yeah, a very vast, worked out network of commerce.
0: Right on. Yeah. So interestingly, there seems to be very little, not none, but very little conflict with Valyria. They were just as close to the Ghiscari and the Quothai cities, but they did fight them. Probably because common sense. Don't fight the ones with dragons, but the rest, sure, fight them. You can probably beat them. Yeah, just don't fight the ones with dragons. Trade with them. Maybe they had good relationships with them. It says that the great grassy that separated Valyria and Sarnor was a impediment to either wanting to fight the other, and they were both so wealthy that trading made more sense. When nations get so powerful that they have so much wealth, the people at the top have very little incentive to go to war with another really powerful nation that they're actively profiting huge amounts from. So that might be part of it. They're both so powerful and wealthy that they just didn't... Like, the incentive just wasn't there for either of them.
1: Also, if they're farther away, it's harder to get your military there. Yeah. And then once you conquer them, it's hard to maintain control over them. Yeah,
0: because we, as we talk about with Valeria, they their power was so concentrated in Valeria. Like, Sarnor is pretty far away. Like, how are you going to rule? It's one thing to rule free cities... Because they're individuals, and you can insult. But how do you rule a whole kingdom? They would have to have be, smashed it pretty, pretty big to, and reduced it to, you know, s- separate regions, and maybe like <laughs> redesignate new states within it to to properly administer. And then who wants to do all that? I mean, someone might, but it's not an yeah, easy especially thing. If you already
1: have trade established, and they're not a threat to you, yeah, yeah. there would
0: be elements within Valyria that would be like, no, let's not go to, let's not fight them. There's so many other people we can go pick on that are just pushovers that we're not actively making lots of money from. So, yeah, there's plenty of reasons why, even if they're not entirely clear. Nina t- uh, has a take on this as well. She says, interesting that it never seemed to go the other way either. With the exception of the Sarnori enslaved by the Valerians after the defeat of Gis in the Fourth Giscari War, the Valerians appear to have never been interested in conquering the Sarnori or extending their empire to the Sarn. Maybe it was a fear of overextension. Sean expressed that the farther east the Freehold conquered and established itself, the harder it would be to put down rebellions in various parts of the empire. Sure, dragons can get there quickly, but the the armies can't, and you need the armies. You can't, dragons alone aren't going to be enough. Dragons are great for threatening them and keeping them in line, but once the armies are in the field, that's a different matter. Maybe the Valerians just never saw the Sarnori as a threat, but did see them as a profit source. That because the local Sarnori kings were just as willing to sell out their neighbors and even their high king as they were to work with them. The Valyrians saw them as useful temporary allies rather than a power that needed to be crushed. Maybe it was because the Valyrians saw the geographical advantages of the kingdom of Sarnor not worth the investment of long military campaigns, much less several, because they saw how many wars it took to subjugate the Ghiscari. It took five wars, right? Even though Valyria won all five of them. That's not much, I mean, that, that's a lot of effort. Yeah, they won every single time, but if they had wanted to dominate Slaver's Bay right away, they probably wouldn't have taken five wars and probably would have just settled it after the first one. But apparently, they tried to let the Gaskari be something that they ruled over, and it just kept being a problem. Or I'm not sure exactly, but clearly they didn't try to settle all at once. Nina continues here. She says the the Valerians already had the fertile, not yet disputed lands in the Great Rhine, as well as access to the Shivering Sea from Andalos into the Summer Sea via the Valerian Peninsula itself. If the Sarnori didn't want what the Valerians had, and they seemed to keep more or less to themselves and the Valyrians didn't want what the Sarnari had, then yeah, it just she makes another reason here for them not to fight. So it seems like we have a, several compelling reasons for them not to fight much, if at all, even if we can't hone in on which reasons were the most important. It seems like we have a, a nice arsenal of options here. Now, the Rhoynar aren't mentioned here. We've mentioned them a lot.
1: sorry, I just got to point out the irony of a nice arsenal of options for people.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> The Roynar say the Roinart aren't mentioned. We've mentioned them several times, but they're not. They're not mentioned here. That's curious, right? They'd have been closer than Giskari, closer than all these others, and reachable by land. So, I wonder if that's just an oversight by the Maesters, by Yandel, or just the information isn't there. But we've spent so much time mentioning the all the similarities, the proximity, common cultural heritage, the potential for shared water magic, things like that seems pretty likely they would have traded with each other as well. I mean, given the proximity, it's not mentioned, but it's a pretty safe assumption. It, it isn't specifically mentioned here that they traded with Kohor either. It's mentioned elsewhere that they did. So it's a safe assumption. Let's see. Actually, it does say the free cities. <laughs> I'm re- rereading the quote. But anyway, I, I figure it's, it's I don't think there's much to read into the Roinar being left out of that. But Nina also expands on the topic. She says, I wonder how much kinship the tall men saw between themselves and the Roinar. Not so much in blood relations, since probably most people of central SS have the same or similar ancestral links. So that, in other words, she's saying that connection is there, but a lot of people would have that same connection. So maybe it's not such a unique connection, but cultural connections as well, not just the blood connections, cultural connections, those are more important, more defined, more easy, especially for people of this era to be able to figure out, because they obviously aren't looking at DNA, (laughs) but they can look at things like common origins, cultural traits, similar physical features. They were both peoples who identified themselves with major regional rivers, the Rhoyne and the Sarn, and while it's unclear whether the Sarnori actually worshipped the Sarn or the Silver Sea, the latter at least definitively seems to have been connected to their gods, since the Fisher Queens, who lived on the Silver Sea, were specifically, quote, favored of the gods. So that's a pretty strong indication. The Sarnori had their all-important river, the Rhoyne had theirs, and so they would keep to their respective domains.
2: Yeah. I spring up a thought about records of trade between Sarnori and Ro- and uh, Roynar, and just in general, I feel like there probably is a huge gap in, in the histories for the Roynar, and that specifically in that quote it mentions it says C- comes from fragments of their otherwise lost histories, records of them from Karth Slavers Bay and the Free Cities. Well, the Roynar cities were destroyed by fire and water.
0: They would have had records would, destroyed like, too. Yeah,
2: like they're of all the like they would have had the the most destroyed records, I think. Yeah. Like like moment.
0: advanced archaeology could search the ruins of these cities in the moment, find Sarnori trade goods, and that would prove yeah, something. Yeah. In that case, or vice but there, versa. But there
2: aren't going to be records. there. All of them would have been burned up or destroyed in the floods.
0: Yeah. Good point. Yes. Well, point. A share. So the people who manage the kingdom of Sarnor. We hear about individual kings of individual cities, or maybe they're more properly called city-states. It's, it's not necessarily important to have a designation. It's more, more important to get the concept down. But we have the high kings of Sarnor, a.k.a. the Azora high kings. This is another similarity to ancient Persia. Cyrus the Great, Xerxes, Darius, and others were referred to as king of kings, which is, in effect, the same thing. Ooh, that rhymed. But these real-world examples probably held more power than is indicated by this quote.
2: By law and custom, all the lesser Sarnori kings were subject to the high king. But in truth, very few of the high kings ever exercised any real power.
0: The term high king seems to originate in England, but the equivalent term exists all over the place, like king of kings or emperor is pretty similar. But it's King of Kings is a softer title. It doesn't sound quite as aggressive as Emperor.
2: Really? Oh, yeah. as Emperor. I thought we were going to say it's High King. So oh,
0: yeah, yeah. High, sounds, high King is sounds, also a little softer. Yeah, High yeah. King
2: sounds softer than King of, king of Kings. But High yeah. King is
0: more like when you say first among equals. That's yeah. more, that's more like that. When emperor is like, no, first, there's no without, with, period. <laughs> you know, the there's king no... <laughs> of kings is like
2: saying, I'm better than all of you to me too.
0: It is, but yeah. it's, of... but it's, it's marketing. It's, it's, that's yeah. why it's similar. Like when you get into it, it's the same thing, but it's yeah. like marketing. It's supposed to sound a little softer.
1: I think of the high king or a high king would be among the different kings the most powerful or the most senior or maybe maybe some greater claim but not necessarily powerful or greater enough to be over all the other kings maybe over any other one but not all of them but the Mm. king of kings he's over all the rest of them they're all subjects to him
0: and yeah so there's tons of real world examples of this and tons of in world examples of this. What
2: about the King of Queens?
0: King of Queens.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's a TV show <laughs> that I don't know much about.
0: Yeah, I don't know much about sh- that show either, other than it exists. You don't need to. <laughs> <laughs> Nina writes Unlike other high kings, the high kings of Dorne along the Greenblood, who were, quote, chosen by election from amongst a dozen noble families that had settled along the river or eastern shores. The high kings of the Iron Islands, which were selected by Kingsmoot, among the captains and kings of the islands. There's no sense of how high kings of Sarnath were chosen, but it sounds like the high king was the king only of Sarnath. Only the central city there, the, main, the the chief city was ever where the high king sat. So it wasn't an elected position, and it always came from the one city, but also it says here they didn't really have a lot of control over the other cities. It was maybe probably not as... Low power as say the Queen of England today, because she's not over other queens or kings, but where the title is somewhat symbolic m- like that, and we're cu- really curious. W-
1: I, I think of it maybe as like the senior c- senator, and hmm. and like in the U.S. Senate, okay. they have more pull, right? You, people are more likely to pay attention to them. They're more likely to be able to pull in more votes or sway an election or a bill. But they aren't specifically in charge of the other seniors, right. their you vote know, counts the, the same, si- yeah, right, mm-hmm. yeah. people more likely to follow them. they want to stay in their good favor, but they don't have any specific legal authority over the others
0: right, right, so yeah, it is a really fascinating, interesting dynamic here that is come unclear, like how this could have there probably were some pretty weak high kings, given if it was dynastic, which it sounds like it was. There'd be some high kings that they would really have ignored and others where they would like, well, we might want to give this guy what he wants because he's a little dangerous or he's, a, he's competent and we don't want to get on his bad side because it's unlikely that one city would have the power to truly dominate all the others. It's a point of, of a balance of power here. You, could, also, you could, could easily find yourself in a situation where one city goes to war with another and all the others just sit out. And if it's Sarnath coming for you, they're the biggest of them. Well, that leaves you in a tough spot. You don't want to be in that spot. So here's another, here's a related quote to build this subtopic a little bit further.
1: Proud and quarrelsome people, they were seldom ever united under a single ruler, but their kingdoms dominated the Western grasslands from the forests of Kohar to the Eastern shores of the vanished silver sea and 50 leagues beyond.
0: All right. So really, really huge, quite huge. I have written here. Some of that domination was eventually probably financial. As we said, the, the trade networks and the, the merchants come in and, spread their money around and do that but i'm sure they used force pretty often as well especially earlier on then here's a quote about how they went into battle ashea
2: their riders wore steel and spider silk and rode coal black mares whilst the greatest of their warriors went to battle in scythe chariots pulled by teams of blood red horses
0: so shout out to tv tropes I, i did some Looking on site TV tropes for this is what's that's one
2: of my favorite sites ever. It really
0: helped get me on the in the right direction with some of these comparisons. I had already sussed out Persia for this, and I had sussed out Babylon and India. That was my own, but they TV tropes turned me on to Scythia and the Sarmatians, which was really important Mm. here. And they also note there's a trope here: color. I forget what it's called. It's like the color hierarchy, which is a common thing where lots of fantasy fictional kingdoms or Places choose animals based on color. Like the superior, the red here, it says the, the blood red horses pulling the chariots. Remember, Khal Drogo's horse is, is a red, all blood red horse, also. And mm. it's like the finest herd in the. I don't know if he prefers red horses or just that particular horse is the best and it's red. But this is very specific. The riders wore steel and spider silk and rolled coal black. So black horses for the individual cavalrymen, red horses for the chariots. You Like, that would make the army really, wow, this is really organized and just distinct. And it would give it a little more, like, grandeur. I don't suppose that would make the Dothraki care. I don't suppose they would care at all, though. I wouldn't bother them. They'd be like, whatever, you fancy wimps. <laughs> <laughs> we also know from an obelisk, a Valyrian obelisk, this the one Nina mentioned earlier, that shows a record of the Fourth Gascari War, that... At least in one era, maybe not for the entire 2,000 years of their existence, the soldiers in the Sarnori Kingdom wore high helms, perhaps to make themselves even taller. Like, they're tall. Like, let's let's press that advantage and get super tall, like the, the stilt walkers <laughs> on Slaver's Bay, but not, not ridiculous like those.
1: <laughs> I wonder if that might have also been... Uh... A command tactic to, to be able to identify where your leader is what direction the soldiers should be going especially if they use any kind of signals yeah
0: the romans did that those plumes that was also for height but also to be able to identify like the ranks and the commander and all that yeah um, and different nations have done different things like that like, like native american tribes have different ornamentation for that a lot of that's just re- like i've did something so i get the feather in my cap quite mm-hmm, quite yeah. literally <laughs> It's a similar concept of, of wearing your rank on your head in a chaotic situation.
1: Modern armies have gone almost the other direction. They try to subdue and hide the ranks because it's easier to target, especially when we have, A, we have missile weapons to take them out, and B, we have radios to communicate for a long distance anyway, so we don't want to be like, hey, I'm the leader. <laughs> like
0: <laughs> It's wor- even worse now with drones. drone spotting, Hello? and like there yeah. have been eight Russian generals killed in Ukraine, which is just an in- incredibly high number for modern warfare. So...
1: I feel like that's pretty sloppy on the Russians' part too. I don't know. Well, that it indicates what but.
0: I read from our our friend, the urban warfare expert John Spencer, who was on the podcast years ago with Max Brooks talking about some Game of Thrones stuff. He said that it indicates a distrust in the lower-ranking officers. The generals go there personally because they don't trust the lower-ranking officers to get the job done, so they're at the front lines for that reason. Yeah. Anyway, let's let's stay out of the real world <laughs> as much as we can for for modern events like that that are ongoing. We like the real world ancient stuff but you know, modern stuff eh, we don't want to get too too into stuff that evokes feelings we don't want to have feelings about that right
1: now and that we can be less certain about we don't have That's the true. proper yeah you're uh right. context of history to look at it
0: you're right this is all ongoing so super ancient warfare scythe chariots none of those are in ukraine right now or if the russians are using those talk about primitive no <laughs> scythe chariots were A feature of Persia. So again, a connection to the ancient Persian empire, the Achaemenids in particular, but probably before them as well. Scythe chariot sounds pretty badass. A chariot going at high speed with big scythes on the wheels. Actually, it's not a very good idea. Early on, people didn't know what to do with them. They were pretty, pretty badass. But eventually armies knew how to handle them and they became pretty weak. All you got to do is have a battle in a place where chariots can't go very fast or straight or at all. And they're worthless. Or you just get out of their way. They don't turn well.
1: They're, they're not maneuverable. Yeah, yeah. it's hard to slow down and change directions. And and once they're past you, it's easy to get them from behind. Yes, so, exactly. Yeah.
0: So what, like, eventually, Alexander's troops, when they faced Scythe chariots, they were like, they knew exactly what to do. And it was a horrible failure for the Persian armies. It was like they were using... Horses against tanks or something. Like, yeah, we, we know exactly how to deal with this. It is, go right ahead, y'all. Send those sized chariots right at us. I don't, I can't imagine they were that effective against Dothraki either. They were probably crappy against the Dothraki who were extremely maneuverable. Yeah. And had
1: era like horse archers. That's,
0: yeah, that seems like a terrible idea.
1: <laughs> a lot of times you have an innovation that seems really good but it's really good as a supplement, not as a main force. Yeah, And if you, you can really create an Achilles heel for yourself if something is meant to supplement or is good in unique situations, if that's your entire force, Archers are really good, but a combination of archers and cavalry are better. Yes. Cavalry is really good, but a combination of cavalry and infantry are better. Yeah, I mean.
0: and it's like archers and infantry are really good. What if you have, you know, both? Yeah, like, and then the Tzraki are are that. They're they're light cavalry and archers in one. Pretty pretty hard and to stop.
1: And never mind the logistical cost between those things, too, right? Like yeah. archers are eventually going to run out of arrows. It takes a lot more material to build chariots and then to feed the horses and so on.
0: And this is... Men and women fighting together is part of it here. That's, as we said, this is also similar to the Roinar, The Rhoynar had uh, warrior women. Though in this case, the women had a very specific common role. We don't exactly know, as far as we know, the Roinar women just fought alongside the men in the same roles. Here, it seems more specific. They were often the chariot drivers. In ancient Greece, that was a very high status position. Persia as well. But still subordinate to whatever noble they were driving the chariot for, obviously. It, it, it suggests it was usually like a father or wife or daughter. I, I assume aunts and nieces and cousins got in there sometimes too. Now it's interesting because in ancient Greece, you mentioned Achilles at Achilles' heel. And I was like, oh, that reminds me because the Greeks used chariots too, but not to fight. They just used them to get from place to place. Like Achilles in the movie Troy is portrayed as riding his chariot to the battle, but not in the battle. He just, it's like a taxi, Uber me to the battlefield. <laughs> and then he gets <laughs> off his chariot and then fights on foot, right? So
1: there's a lot of that as well. Even a little debate in a lot of early chariots Maybe they were just carts and not chariots.
0: Yeah, they were, yeah, may as well just be a cart. Yeah,
1: (laughs) Cartia, charia, is a similar word, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Nina says, the reliance on chariots underlines the Sarnori as a foil and contrast to Dithraki, where the Dithraki ride horses themselves, relegating only youngest, most infirm to carts, right? Viserys was the Kalragat, the cart king, which was a deep insult. So I I Mm -hmm. can imagine the Dithraki not only look down on ch- chariots as a weapon of war, but just in general, as a, you cart rider, you ragat or whatever that is. <laughs> yeah. So just plenty of things for the Dithraki to have contempt for the Sarnori. So yeah, I wonder if they just were stubborn, like it was a noble thing, a part of the noble culture, and they just couldn't get away from their chariots. Or maybe the chariots were, were gone longer before, were told maybe the chariots were out of fashion, but it says they were around in the final battles. So, you know, I guess they just didn't, they didn't, never moved past that old style. The fools, I
1: can also imagine it still might have been almost like I was saying, a piece of their military, but not the centerpiece, something that the commanders used yeah. to get back and forth and to transfer information or, or even to carry materials, to carry swords, repair parts, food, water, arrows, etc.
0: Now, the idea that armies don't adjust to modern warfare isn't unrealistic at all. I mean, look at, say, the French in World War I. War had, that that was one of the biggest earth-shifting changes was comparing World War I to earlier wars when there wasn't, like, mechanized infantry and machine guns and things like that. The French just kept sending battalions to be mowed down with their honorable, noble, frontline, like, attitude towards war. And they would just get thousands of people slaughtered over and over. Just kept sending them into the, charging into machine gun fire over and over and over. And it's it's infuriating to think about. (laughs) Even it happened a hundred years ago, but it's geez, just learn something. (laughs) You know, just adjust. (laughs) This is not working. (laughs) You know, but yeah, they just anyway. So it's the Sarnori just kept using chariots against the Dthraki and kept not working. That is realistic. As dumb as it sounds.
1: For <laughs> reason casualties were so high in the Civil War, too. Yeah. Like, guns got better, but they were just still walking out in the field. Just charging like they were using swords
0: and spears. Yeah, just like, uh, mm-hmm. armor doesn't work against those bullets, man. <laughs> 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 Not well, anyway. So, yeah, so in the early days, they subjugated the Samaria, the Zakor and the Gips. we said. We mentioned them with the Hezor Amai anecdotes. They, they apparently fought with Valyria against the Gascari. That, that seems like a, opportunism. Is like they knew which side to take. I could see who was going to lose after the first war went the Valyrian's way. They're like, hmm, they're going to fight them again. Let's help and get a share of the plunder. Oh, you're doing it again. Let's do that again. The third time, the fourth time, some silly Sarnori cities fought for the Gascari. Like what? Why would you do that? They lost the first three times. You're like, this is the time they're going to beat the dragons. But some Sarnori cities stayed with the Valyrians. So you've got split uh, alliances there, which goes to show the independence level of these cities. Possibly a decline in their decision-making, similar to this insistence on chariots, but also it's it's an indication of that greed was ruling them. They weren't thinking about keeping themselves safe or protecting their people. They were just driven by rivalries and pride. And what else explains these bad decisions? To me, it seems you keep it simple with things like this. They're focused on enriching themselves. They're corrupt, like the Carthine people we see that Danny's exposed to. Thousands of years of corruption make them into these wildly exotic versions of of long-term corruption. The Palace of a Thousand Rooms was what we have for Sarnor. And in the Carth, there's the, whatever, the Hundred thrones, or whatever, and every single dude is sitting on a throne in this one room. It's crazy. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> this is what this reminds me of, right? These guys are just so far detached from reality. They've been rich, absurdly rich, for so long, for so many generations that they just don't, what they want, they get. So they extend that to all forms of reality. Like, I, the Dithraki will not defeat us because. I'm the great Gangai Alorhai. That's a name I just made up. <laughs> and I get what I want. It's as if your projection can change reality.
2: As you're going to get into it, it's, gonna, it's pretty easy to uh, come up with some Sarnori sounding names, huh? <laughs> yeah. You just did it right there. Don't <laughs> yeah. spot. Yeah, just
0: put those eyes at the end. The ores
2: and the Amon. Oh yeah, the
0: ores, the Sars, the Nass. You just, you know, there's a mix of those, right? They also fought against Bravos. Apparently, that didn't go well. I mean, they fought Bravos at sea, which that almost never goes well. <laughs> this was early on when Bravos was new, and they didn't know what he, people didn't realize how well the Bravosi were at sailing. But the last war fleet the Sarnori ever commissioned was sunk by the Sea Lord of the time. They were fighting over a place called Bitterweed Bay. If you're looking at the map, it's this dip in the continent between the Ax and the Sarn. So it is pretty close to where the Sarnori operate, but. Yep, they lost. Apparently, that's the site of many battles. Lots of something like the the World of Ice and Fire says there's like 50,000 ships sank there or 50,000 dead sailors and 10,000 ships or something like that. Thousand ships, I think it was. Anyway, thousands that standard, just big number that could be a lot more. On the delta of the Sarn now, there's a Lorathi colony called Morash, which is interesting. Uh, That's probably a newer thing. Probably after the Kingdom of Sarnor fell, this opened the door for something like this. They did fight against the Distraki before the Dithraki emerged to annihilate them, back when the Darthraki were more contained. This was probably a thing they did to like make themselves look cool. Like a noble Sarner would go fight some Dothraki, come home and be like, I waged war on the Dothraki. I am a, a cool guy. You give me a claim now. But why did we call this the Azorah Kings? Why did I say that? Well high kings. First because I like puns. A high king. They're, they're high kings. But the naming convention, we don't have a lot of Sarnori names on record, but they all sound like Azorahai. Check it out. Huzor I? Every one of them? Every single one of them. Check this out. Huzor I. Mazor Alexei. Okay, that's all. Those are the only Sarnori names we have. <laughs> <laughs> all of them sound like Azora High. Those two, which comprises all of them. But they really do. But they really do. Huzor, Azor, My, high like Alexi. Alexi. Yeah, that is real similar. What do we make of that? I honestly don't know. I'm kind of stuck take on What I think of it but... is
2: that Azor Ahai came from Sarnor. That was where like the Azor high figure came from. And again, to be clear, Azus and I, and I think Shun maybe feels similarly. There were a lot of figures that were part of the savior of humanity. There wasn't just one Azore high It was the many faced Azore High. But one of them was from Sarnor.
0: And was it may have literally had this name. It yes, it may have, it may one have one literally had, had that this name.
2: name. The, he was the Imas uh, Azor Azore High, but that there there would have been others that that have been mentioned um in other episodes.
0: Yeah, like nefer has whatever the the one guy, E.T. has Yintar. Yeah, Yintar. It's, it's just all these different yeah, like, hero figures. Yintar isn't the
2: same person as High. Like, We don't think that. It's not canon. like We don't know. It is possible that they are one and the same person. There's one figure that is the same. But probably Yintar worked with Azor Ahai, etc.
0: But this may have been the guy, like the main guy. If there was a main guy, if any of them had the main guy, it was here. It was a, a Sarnori person who emerged. And that would be interesting. That would make, that would make Azor Ahai would be a brown-skinned person. Yeah. <laughs> cool, cool.
2: Yeah, I mean, like the Rhoynar, like, they have their tale about how the Long Night was stopped and about how all these, like, the people came together and sang a song that yeah. stopped it and they they clearly know the tale, too. <laughs>
0: and that would have been close by. You're right. That would have been in close proximity. And if Azor Ahai was an early Sarnori person from 10,000 years ago before the, long or during the Long Night, before or during, or and or during. I mean, best guess, they were Sarnori. It seems pretty solid. But Just the naming convention alone is, it's not, it's not like there's other naming conventions out there in the world that, that are similar to this, at least not that we know of. Pretty strong, pretty strong evidence. So folks, mm-hmm. tell us what you think of that if you are so inclined. We think it's a pretty cool conclusion, a pretty solid conclusion, but one with a lot of potential historical ramifications that we may not have fully realized. Maybe you will be someone that figures out an additional important detail. Shall we move on to the fall of Sarnor? The ending for the, of the Sarnori.
2: No, I don't want them to end. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks.
1: Well, the fall
0: is a, is a lengthy portion. We're, we've still got a good chunk left of this episode.
1: I did want to say real quick, whenever you say Azora hiking, <laughs> in my mind I'm thinking Azora safari.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> So of what we know of Sarnor,
0: it actually seems like the fall of Sarnor is the part we know the most about, the largest vein of knowledge. If you were to carve up and categorize the things we know about it, the ending is the thing we we have the greatest detail on. And some of that is telling... It is the most recent part of it. Like it's the most recent part of their history. is their end. But I think George also just has a penchant for exploring the root causes of civilizations falling, and he likes to show that a lot of times it's very similar things here. So many of these fallen kingdoms got really corrupt before they fell, got really wealthy before they fell, and those two things obviously go together. Greed perhaps being the most dominant of the things that rule over us. Hmm is maybe a point he's making. Uh, many many of them, of the f- kingdoms that fell in Martin's world, didn't decline gradually. They fell pretty quickly. Not as quickly as the Doom of Valyria. It's hard to be quicker than that. But Sarnor fell fairly quickly, considering how long they were around. Uh, we've given past examples of that. For example, Assyria. We talked about how Assyria fell, was so big and so powerful for so long But fast forward a couple hundred years later, even the people living in the ruins didn't know who built those ruins. And that takes us back to the beginning when Danny had no idea who these ruined cities were from and which made that realistic. It made it sense that George didn't give us a name. So let's give some real world examples to parallel here real quick. This isn't a deep dive, just an overview. I mentioned the Assyrians just now. Alexander the Great's invasion of Persia. Pretty good example similarity since Persia has come up so many times. A lot of the the Persian cities ruled by the high king individual. They they like the Dothraki. The Persians didn't take Alexander seriously at first. His army was pretty small, and so they were like, Ah, what's that small army going to do? Well, what it's going to do is conquer your entire empire. But they didn't take him seriously till too too late, and maybe it wouldn't have mattered. They may have lost anyway. And it's a good example of the level of corruption that existed there. And and something that I suspect happened at Sarnor as well, which is when Alexander unlocked the treasury of the Persian empire, there was like the equivalent of 3 billion modern U.S. dollars just sitting there, just sitting there gathering dust. He immediately reinvested into the Persian economy. He just started building temples, roads, churches. He spent like 75% of that put into the economy. And it was great. It was like, wow, this is a, as far as conquerors go. This is <laughs> could do a lot worse. You know? <laughs> and <it certainly laughs> and that's, so that's pretty telling. Now that didn't, so it didn't cause the fall of the Persian empire. In fact, it made it better in a lot of ways. Of course, Alexander died like 10 years later and it all collapsed and did get a lot worse. It did become civil war and it did become awful, but it had a good start <laughs> before it all went belly up. So that's a really strong parallel because the, the vast, mighty Persian Empire, probably the biggest empire of its time that ever existed until that point in history and, and stayed that way for a long time, fell apart pretty quickly because of a threat they didn't take seriously. You know, the Dithraki aren't that similar to Alexander, but it's still a threat they took too lightly until it was too late. So because the Persian Empire didn't cease to exist because of that, we look at the Mongol invasions as another similar ending, like the the end of the Islamic Golden Age, which is has a lot of similarities to the fall of Sarnor and the Mongol invasions, their policy was full destruction, which is very similar to the Thiraki. That was like a policy. For the Mongols, it was more a logistical warfare thing. For the Dothraki, it was more of a religious thing. Same bottom line result, absolute annihilation. Books and scrolls, people, pets, farms, wells, everything. Just They put effort, significant effort, into destroying the place.
1: They After they destroyed a city, after they sacked a city and killed every man, woman, child, and animal there, they would send a contingency back like 10 days later to make sure they got, if someone was hiding or if people were out getting water, they, just to make sure they got all, all the rest of them. It was just... Yeah, no,
0: one ever, no, one, I thi- no one ever took destruction as like thoroughly and organized as the Mongols did probably.
1: I think eventually... Uh, Genghis Khan had advisors that convinced them to not kill everyone because they'd be better off if there were still people to farm the lands. Mm. That The land they were conquering wasn't as valuable without people to farm it, so eventually, I guess I'll leave enough people <laughs> alive to, to farm the lands, I guess. I guess that makes sense. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, I guess it makes sense. <laughs> Genghis Khan, in same, this and, case. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> And uh, they weren't, I don't think that there was like an empire like Sarnor as a whole that they were taking out. It was just different city-states that were coming out, maybe some smaller. Which is similar, yeah. Because <laughs> one of them but, was like uh,
0: the, salt, the the Sultan Bayezid, who ruled a huge territory and had a lot of different cities that were sort of like vassals to him. But he was yeah. ruled them all. But yeah, but they were there was a lot of picking off. And that was another feature of the Islamic Golden Age. It's a misnomer to say the Mongols were the only reason. Infighting made them weak and allowed helped make the Mongols job easier of strong because they didn't they didn't unite to stop the existential threat, much like yeah. the the Saranori didn't.
1: But farther north, in I guess what would be like modern-day Russia, Ukraine, and that area, as the Mongols came across, they were, they, they failed to unite there as well, but there, I think there was less infighting. They were just more like, this is our city. You worry about your stuff. We'll worry about ours. Yeah. Mm. And after the Mongols just destroyed one after another, eventually they realized, okay, maybe we're going to have to help each other out. Yeah. But even in, it wasn't even close. They still just didn't trust each other. The largest army ever, and the Mongols just, like, with their, like, expeditionary force. It wasn't even, like, the main army. They just, like, rolled over them like it was nothing. Yeah. Like, I don't want to go off too much on this, but almost the only reason, there's a lot of variables and factors, but pretty much the only reason they just go all the way across France is because... Genghis Khan died. And they're like, oh, well, I guess we should go back home now. You know, yeah. but, like, there, but they were like easily winning every battle.
0: <laughs> yeah. There was some, like, there was some weather stuff that was starting to mess with them too, like the temperature, the regions, like, that was getting to be a little too different yeah. for them. But still, you're right. You're right. That was basically, that's something we can come back to when we talk about the Dothraki because they're obviously going to be a, the real world influence Closer main parallel. part. Yeah. But... Yeah, so it's similar, they're similar to the fall of the Rhoynar. The Rhoynar also failed to unite against an existential threat. This is like the Dothraki, though, that even if they had united against the Valyrians, they probably still would have lost. Like, the Rhoynar weren't going to beat the dragons. They might have maybe managed a piece where they didn't go head to head. That maybe could have happened, but I don't even know about that. And the Reinhardt, same thing. The Reinard took a while to unite. They didn't, this, the various princes didn't trust each other that much. And even when they all- allied, it was still like keeping each other at arm's length. It wasn't full commitment and bad. bad One night. thing
1: is there's a difference between winning, losing, and being annihilated. Yeah. And sometimes if you put up enough of a fight that you don't win, but you are making it hard enough on the conqueror, that they're willing to negotiate some sort of peace rather than totally annihilate you, and they failed to do that.
0: Yeah, and what's what's ironic about the Dithraki, who were very independent, is the Dithraki united against them.
1: (laughs) And that's ultimately,
0: Mm -hmm. which is like what Genghis Khan did. He united the tribes, and that made them a huge force. Kal Mengo, apparently the first one to unite the tribes, and he showed that as a model. Like, other Dithraki would be like, oh... Now we have something else to aspire to. The biggest, most powerful Jathraki calls can now go. Well, I can try to have the call of I'd call, be the call of calls, or whatever. Do something kind of like what Drogo did, where he had a really huge callasar, but it still wasn't everyone. It, was, it still wasn't everyone. That's the true stallion that mounts the road is supposed to truly unite all of the Dithraki into one huge Lasar, which is. Daenerys. She's the one who's doing that really. That's another Azora high tie-in right there. So they they failed to unite, and when they did, it may not have been enough. Although I do feel more strongly about the Roynar's cause being hopeless than than the Sarnori. They may have been able to step up. I mean, let's let's be honest, like dragons versus Dothraki Screamers. You'd rather face Dothraki Screamers. That's I mean <laughs> that's still really, really, really hard, but y- dragons are harder. I mean, shh. So the Targaryen fall is another example. Their fall was slower. I, I'm obviously I'm talking about the Targaryen's, not the Valyrian. The Valyrian fall was instant. But the Targaryen's was more gradual, right? They had if Ares, the mad king, had dragons, he would have either have gotten away with his atrocities or he would have gotten killed and a different Targaryen would have taken over, like Magor. So that's what happened to Magor. Magor was killed off and his nephew took over. I mean, and even during Ares' time, there were people like Let's get rid of him and put Rhaegar on the throne. Even Rhaegar was like, yeah, maybe that's the right thing to do. But too slow. Too slow, Rhaegar. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he would have had more time if the Targaryens had dragons, though. Yeah. It wouldn't oh, have been yeah. as easy for Ned to just launch into war if they had to fa- face dragons. So.
0: And even after the Targaryens fell, the kingdom still existed. It was still the Iron Throne. Still the kingdom of the Iron Throne, though that did... Maybe that's going to not be there at the end of the books, though. So maybe we're still in the... Historically speaking, this might be just a short, intermittent phase before the Iron Throne vanishes. Okay, the Targaryens died. Oh, the Iron Throne survived. Oh, well, but 20 years later, actually, it didn't. You know, it was was just one more, one or two or three more kings of of House Baratheon before it was gone for good. We're living in an important part of history here, living, reading about an important part of history here. (laughs) And it's going to shape maybe the way things are coming
1: later. Just the idea that some of these great conquerors, these great, great moments of accomplishment, quote unquote, like the the Mongols coming across, they don't last very long, right? A couple generations and they fade away. But the empires that really last, like Rome, maybe Westeros, they're based more on trade and diplomacy negotiation marriages than they are on warfare yeah and i think that that's that's true important to take note of and maybe gives the seven kingdoms hope i don't know
0: yeah the mongols are an exception because they actually did manage to turn into that they like they went from this hyper aggressive martial culture to they did establish huge trade routes and settle into more of an or what, what we think of as a more normal king normal quote a normal kingdom because, like, Alexander, nope, didn't, couldn't pull that off. Julius Caesar, nope, stabbed to death, like, right after he got started. So Genghis Khan really is an exception there. The Doom That Came to Sarnath, H.P. Lovecraft story from 1920, one of his earliest. I, I do recommend reading it. It's only 10 minutes long. Like, uh, standard disclaimer, H.P. Lovecraft, terrible dude, but a very influential author. He can't possibly benefit from you reading his work. It's all free. It's just out, you can just, the link that I read is, yeah, hplovecraft.com, every... Thing he's ever written is right there to read for free there's no ads even so you're not you're not giving anyone money
1: he's not even alive to get money right Whoa, so, no. he's like,
0: been he died poor and, and alone in 1940 and like at like age 39 or 40 yeah he had a he didn't have a good life oh that young huh? he died young yeah he had a bad upbringing both his both like his mom got syphilis his dad was like abusive yeah it was really yeah plenty you could say about that none of it good so here is a quote from that story you will recognize some of this. It will feel familiar, and
1: it's pretty cool. I could read the whole story if it's only 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I considered that,
2: actually. I, yeah, I, I saw you wrote that. I did consider that, too. I was like, huh. Uh, yeah,
0: I could have. You know, I could read the whole thing and release it separately as a recording. That'd be fun. Maybe I'll do that. we'll yeah, do <laughs>
1: that. In lieu of that, we'll just do this uh, <laughs> a couple of paragraphs here. After many eons, men came to the land of Minar, dark shepherd folk with their fleecy flocks who built Thra. Larnek, and Kadatheron on the winding river Ai. And certain tribes, more hardy than the rest, pushed on the border of the lake and built Sarnath at a spot where precious metals were found in the earth. Not far from the gray city of Ib did the wandering tribes lay the first stones of Sarnath, and at the beings of Ib they marveled greatly. (laughs) But with their marveling was mixed hate, for they thought it not meet that beings of such aspect should walk about the world of men at dusk. Nor did they like the strange sculptures upon the gray monoliths of Ib, for those sculptures were terrible with great antiquity.
0: A kind of reminder of the ones that Danny was told were from the Shadowlands, the sculptures that are just so terrifying. Right. I'm like, what the hell is that? What? Yeah, Ibs. We, yeah, no, we have
2: one familiar thing I just want to shout out. Thra is named here. I never knew this was a reference to Lovecraft. That's the world in the dark crystal, Thra. I didn't know that. Oh, Oh, nice. It's not with two A's, but it's got to be a reference.
0: That's pretty specific. Yeah. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Yeah. Ib and Sarnath, same spellings. That's where George got those names from. Sarnor did war with Ib for the mouth of the Sarn. So that's also, you know, part of something George borrowed very vaguely. Also, those sculptures um, like Dragonstone, maybe, or the Long Bridge, which is a segue to another quote from the doom that came to Sarnath.
2: The wonder of the world and the pride of all mankind was Sarnath the Magnificent. Of polished, desert-quarried marble were its walls, in height 300 cubits, and in breadth 75, so that chariots might pass each other as men drove them along the top.
0: That is, uh, George borrowed that line, too, if you remember the black walls of Volantis of polished desert quarried marble walls here, but the black walls of Volantis are shorter but broader. A cubit is a foot and a half. So the, the these Sarnath the Magnificent and Lovecraft stories are 450 feet height, and in Volantis, I think they're, they're 200 feet high, as indicated by Quentin when he's in Essos,
1: quote, Across the wide blue expanse of the ruin, he could see the black wall that had been raised by the Valerians when Volantis was no more than an outpost of their empire. A great oval of fused stone 200 feet high and so thick that six four-horse chariots could race around its top abreast, as they did each year to celebrate the founding of the city. So
0: chariots passing each other or racing each other on top of a wall is a very, very similar reference. Clearly a similar idea. Back to the doom that came to Sarnath, another quote that fits in here super nicely.
2: Lofty and amazing were the 17 tower-like temples of Sarnath fashioned of a bright, multicolored stone not known elsewhere. A full thousand cubits high (laughs) (laughs) stood the greatest among them, wherein the high priests dwelt with a magnificence scarce less than that of the king's.
1: I want to point out that that is a preposterous. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> that is that's taller than all the seven wonders of the world stacked on top of each <laughs> other.
0: <laughs> that is really high. So that's fifteen hundred feet, which is more than twice the height of the wall of Westeros. The library or the lighthouse of Alexandria, one of the tallest buildings of antiquity, was four hundred ninety-two feet tall. So well short of that, a third basically. Ming Temple in China. Oldest ancient Chinese tower. It's, like, it's a pagoda, similar to a tower. 448 feet high, 136 meters. The Great Pyramid. The Great Pyramid, 492 feet high. Same as the Lighthouse of Alexandria. 146 meters, 150 meters roughly. 40 years later, the Pyramid of Khafre, 20 feet shorter than the Great Pyramid, so slightly shorter. Tallest modern building is the Burj Khalifa. That's 2,717 feet. That is massively tall, but that's using modern techniques. So this is this is Lovecraft, not you know, Sarnor, that's the Sarnor of Martin's world, which did have really tall towers. Essos' Sarnath is, quote, a Sarnath of the tall towers. So he preserved the idea of the tall towers without specifying just how tall they were, whereas we do have a height here. I have to assume magic was involved here.
1: (laughs) It would have to be continuously evolved, because just think about it for a second. I mean, this is that's like the Empire State Building. It's like a skyscraper. It's, you know, so even if somehow they built that, how do they get, to, do they have elevators? Like, how do they get to the top? Yeah, they have to use how many stairs? It crazy stairs. Hours just to get up there. Do they, can they, they probably to the lifts, bathroom? Is there yet. food? Yeah. How does it withstand wind? It's just crazy. It sounds There's like no you
0: can... need to do some research on ancient towers. Like, how do they handle that? You know, I mean, if, ones that were real. Well, they only you know? got
1: to 500 feet tall. Well, Those are like the tallest building. Well, still,
0: I would still be curious. Like, how do they handle a toilet, yeah, an true. ancient toilet at 500 yeah. feet high? Like, you just like poop out the window and it just lands on the ground? <laughs> I think that is some places th- and it did sometimes, do that.
2: Sometimes, in some places, they would use like pulley systems, right? Yeah,
0: yeah like those like yeah. dumb waiters. Like, I, I specifically
2: it, yeah. asked about this in in terms of Castle Rock on the inside. Yes, I asked George because in like the Rock of Gibraltar and in other places, the Castle Rock was like based on they do use pulley systems. But no, he said they do not have like dumb waiters like in Castle Rock, which I'm like, okay,
0: they have servants. Yeah, they lots, have, of they servants. Have
2: lots of servants. Lots of servants. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Castle
0: Rock, by the way, is three times taller than the high tower even, but that's a mountain.
2: It's yeah. Car, yeah. It's,
0: you know, it's an actual
2: but it's mountain, a mountain it's with stuff a, inside, you yeah. know, like people used still logistically have to get from point yeah. A to point yeah. B. You still have uh, to go
1: up. And I mean, even if it's not the same building yeah. height challenge, it's still the logistical operations challenge is yeah. there. Yeah. It's massive. <laughs> but just quick little side note. I, I wonder even if this might've affected Lovecraft's writing At the big shift, like 500 feet was about like the limit of the tallest buildings until around the late 1800s, because the invention of the skyscraper was based around... I mean, I think they also needed elevators. They also needed like other new technologies. But basically, the idea was, instead of the walls of the building bearing the weight... They built a steel structure, mm. and the walls were just attached onto that, rather than the walls holding the weight. And that right. was like what enabled skyscrapers to be built,
0: which they didn't but have that steel was, back then. Like, yeah, they couldn't have had big right. Steel that beams, was only yeah.
1: happening in you know the late like eighteen nineties. was the first time they were starting to build buildings like that, which would have been in Lovecraft's life. So he might have been inspired the potential mega heights <laughs> that yeah. a building could have. I don't know. It's
0: interesting to see like the way they use steel and in, in stone structures, like the Romans, for example, would 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 make huge rocks and chisel out like a little hole in the side of each of them and then two holes would line up and then they would pour molten metal into that and that would cool and lock the rocks together and in place primitive
1: rebar yeah almost. exactly
0: it's a really mm-hmm. neat well that's pretty clever so yeah you wonder like uh, maybe some other fancy techniques were used in, in some of these things but yeah it, it pretty much has to be magic is <laughs> the only real explanation yeah <laughs> <laughs> that fills in the gaps yeah but then, of course that's Again, that's Lovecraft's 1,500-foot tower, not, not George R. Martin's. George didn't give heights for the, the tall towers of Sarnath. They were big, probably not that big.
1: But he did give some heights of some other structures that are also pretty huge, pretty close and preposterous. Yeah. Yeah. George has said that the wall is probably
0: too tall. <laughs> but, yeah. whatever, but whatever. <laughs> so that was the doom that came to Lovecraft's Sarnath. Let's talk about the actual doom that came to Sarnath, the Dithraki, which is our closing section here. And it starts with a
1: quote. The Confederation of Cities, later called the Kingdom of Sarnor, survived the Valerian expansion thanks to the Great Plain that separated one from the other. Only for that plain and the people who occupied it, the Dothraki horse lords, to be the source of Sarnor's downfall after the doom.
2: So you could say that the Great Plain became a great pain? <laughs> it sure did. <laughs>
0: that works. <laughs> so they took great pains to fight the people of the Great Plains. So this was the Century of Blood. So we had a lot to say in the Century of Blood episode, but we specifically said we'll leave out the Kingdom of Sarnor because it's such a huge story on its own. And as you can see, this has been a pretty long episode. So the Kingdom of Sarnor fell in the same era. It wasn't directly because of the Doom, but it was an indirect cause of the Doom, you could say. It helped unleash the Dithraki, and Sarnor was their first major target, thanks to proximity Again, Dothraki Sea, Silver Sea, all that business. So the Dothraki united under a single leader for the first time, like I said, Kal Mengo. He used the Sarnori attitude towards his own people to his advantage. Quote,
2: Contemptuous of the horse lords, who had been no more than a nuisance to them for centuries, the tall men ignored the threat from the east for far too long, even as the Kalasars began to raid across their eastern marches. Some of their kings even sought to use the Dithraci in their own wars, offering them gold and slaves and other gifts to fight against their rivals. Kalmengo took these gifts gladly, then took the conquered lands as well, burning fields and farms and towns to return the grasslands to their wild state.
0: Yeah, so that's. That's really just dancing with the devil, isn't it? They're they're buying the Dithraki off to go attack their rival Sarnori cities, and the and the, all the while the Dithraki are learning how to fight against the Sarnori, learning all about their lands and their leaders and their territory, and just filing all that away until
1: and accumulating more wealth as the cities true leading
0: out wealth true good point, and that just makes more Dithraki like ooh this guy really is he's a man to follow. Kalmengo's followers would just. Must have been grand over there because he was the first guy to unite them all. They're like, wow, this guy is really something. Maybe they thought he was a sign that mounts the world. Maybe that's something we should talk about when we do this Rocky episode. So the cities were picked off one by one, starting with Sathar, the waterfall city. The men were all slain, women and children enslaved. Most of them died on the march to Slaver's Bay, three quarters of them. The World of Ice and Fire says the cities of the Sarn finally realized their peril when an event that truly shows how far gone the leadership of these cities was. Detached from reality, driven by greed, they did this, quote,
1: even then, the kings of Sarnor proved unable to unite. As Sathar Bern, the kings of Cassath to the west and Gornath to the north, sent forth their armies, not to aid their neighbors, but to lay claim to, the, to a share of the plunder. Oosh. And their greed for land, Kassath and Gornath, even came into conflict with one another and fought a pitched battle three days' ride west of Sathar, as plumes of black smoke rose in the eastern sky.
0: So the Dithragicom destroy one of the major Saranori cities, and the two nearest by Sarnori cities just go fight over the, the ruins as if like, oh, yeah, this is no big deal let's go get some loot like this, this isn't going to be a Too problem bad for them yeah but, you know yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so wow so it's not it's again back to what i said at the beginning how i introduced this topic They're not only are they not uniting against an existential threat, which is bad enough. They're fighting each other during it. It's not only are they failing to ally, but they're fighting each other. It sounds a lot like the War of Five Kings with the others looming. Except in at least in that case, the five kings don't know the others are looming. They at least have that excuse. (laughs) In this case, like the others, imagine if the others had already destroyed Winterfell or White Harbor, and people are still like, "Ah, let's let's let's
1: see if we can bring them on our side. By the way, you can imagine Cersei and Euron would be like that. I can. You know? Yes, you're right. <laughs> I can, in fact, imagine maybe, that. maybe one of those, you know, contenders of the Five Kings, you know, might do the right thing. Maybe one of them. I don't know. Maybe I don't. Know, maybe Stannis. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> and this
0: is a really important example because the Dothraki are coming to Westeros. How are the High Lords going to react to this? We've talked. We we brought it up many times as well. It won't be good. They won't react positively to it. They they're basically the equivalent of the. Sarnari kings not the high king but like the individual high lords are basically have a similar level of power to lord lannister lord baratheon all these things will they continue to fight each other while the Dithraki run free in danny's name or will they unite or will they unite untrustingly and not very effectively or will they unite and still lose because the dothraki are just too strong too overwhelming and they've got a dragon or three helping them i mean it doesn't look good for westeros in that regard. i don't think they're going to beat Daenerys' armies. And it, and I don't think they would beat her army even if it was just the Dothraki. Uh, until they learn how to fight Dothraki, if they have the chance, first chance, the first opportunity, the Dothraki, the Dothraki will have the edge going into that. They will have a better battle plan, better preparation. Yeah. <laughs> more prepared, more understanding of what's going on. Yeah. but I, So it's hard to predict, but it, 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 we can guess it will not go well. So maybe some of the lessons of the Sarnori will be Learned very difficultly by it's not a word. By the by the Westerasi as well. How does that strike you, Sean, comparing the fall of the Dithrachi the fall of the Sarnori cities to the Dithraki to what might come in Westeros when the Dithraki arrive there as well?
1: I, I don't straight up disagree with you, but I'm not as confident because they got to, they got to get there first Yeah, and they're, they might not be properly equipped or fed, you might know,
0: too cold. Yeah. Who knows?
1: Yeah. Some areas, maybe not right. If they're in a the reach or, you know, that's not necessarily, oh, but might be colder if winter's coming. You yeah, know? Yeah, so, true. Um, yeah, it's easy to look at that battle on TV,
0: the battle of the, the loot train battle or whatever, and say,
1: Oh, it's just going to be a slaughter like this. There's other things too, that George might actually account for, The Dothraki might come across there and become diseased because they're not used to the germs that exist in Westeros or vice versa. They might bring over the same plague that's hitting marine. They might bring with them too. (laughs) Yeah, the bloody, Uh, the pale That's a significant factor. It might not be exciting reading. You know what I mean? It might not be what audiences are hoping for. So yeah. maybe he won't deal with it as much, but it would be a factor, I think, in reality. I like that, um, that disease also,
0: idea. I've talked about that a lot. It's something I think is going to be a big deal, not just grayscale, but other things. I think some some analysts of our fandom out there think it won't be a big deal. I disagree. We'll see. Obviously, it's up to George, yeah. but this is, a, 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 so that's part of why I like your, your idea here. because it, Yeah, it fits from with- <laughs> a logistical,
1: realistic standpoint, I feel like it should be. From an entertainment standpoint, I can understand why it might not we'll be. See. yeah. On top of that, though, another factor is that, you know, and again, this is there's a lot. When you're talking about the Dothraki, right, you're talking about scores of thousands of people. And even if they are of a similar culture, there's still going to be a lot of diversity within them, just the difference in their generations. And think about what it will take, even if they get united behind Danny and earn all the dragons and take up this cause. The fact is... Some are going to be more or less excited about crossing an ocean. There's got to be some contingency. They're like, nope, we're just not going to do that. Yeah. And then once they do, it might be a life changing event that makes them wholeheartedly the ones that were willing to do it in the first place. And now that they make it across, might be even more committed to Danny than ever. But there's going to be some contingency. They're like, a whole new land. We can do what we want over here. And Dana's like, all right, at this time, go to this place and fight these. Like, screw you. Yeah. Some of them might be like,
0: yeah.
1: Mm. Yeah. So they might win those first few battles, maybe even easily, but that might encourage them more to go off and do their own thing mm. to become well, more scattered, more difficult could to control. Or easy to I, beat. I it depends. Why yeah, do we like, need the dragon.
2: You know, I can just defeat them.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I could see that. It might be if anything keeps them all in line, it could be just this is a religious this event this yeah. whole thing has religious significance. that they think if they if they truly see her as the stallion that mounts the world, but even there still would be exceptions probably.
2: Yeah, not everyone yeah. is a devotee of, yeah. of you know, religion. And yeah. I, I, yeah, That is the thing I think that I've, seen, I've expressed so many times that we want out of the Winds of Winter and a Dream of Spring is some Dithraki. We want to see this, this variety within the Dithraki culture. We want to see some of them struggling with their beliefs or, yeah, all of this culture class. Every, yeah, any of this would be interesting. We won't
0: get a POV, but we will hopefully get more than we've gotten. It'd be nice to see.
2: Yeah, it's them. not hard to get more.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And just imagine the effect that journey will have, like, just some of them will get seasick, if there's a storm, if a ship sinks, yeah. and then they mm. get there and their population is decimated by some disease, they might start to question Danny. That's their religion, true. you know, fervor might not last if they do lose wrong. a battle in there somewhere. Like, it it could fall apart for Danny. I like I do, like, it, you start off saying you feel like they have the advantage, and I think I we'll agree with you, but I don't know if they have... A clear, obvious, definite advantage the whole way.
0: Yeah, you could see how the advantage would would fall off. Like you, you agree with the initial advantage, but maybe that advantage doesn't hold over the long term. They may yeah. learn how to fight the Dithraki. You know, mean, stop. Po- I, yeah.
2: Plus, I mean, a lot of times combat is about knowing the land, and they don't know. The they land. don't know Field the land. Advantage, like, they yeah. don't know it at all. It'll like, not even remotely. Some
0: areas, like the Dithraki in the Rainwood, that. They're not going to be riding their horses around, galloping yeah, around in the yeah. deep jungles of the rain, near, near jungles of the rainwood, for example.
1: <laughs> I think we're coming up onto a discussion of this also, but it's uh, probably not exactly in a Dothraki's comfort zone to besiege cities if the Westerosi just pull behind big walls. Yeah charging cavalry doesn't help very much and restless soldiers in a foreign land might not just hang around well, that's and why so... you got the
2: dragon at least yeah yeah there is burn the easily, gates open so, yeah. for
1: them yeah give them
0: a... <laughs> blow that door down pretty much so continuing with the fall of the the cities we, we left off here a minute ago with the fall of sathar and yeah so look what happens next it's not only did they gather and just fight over spoils, Gornath then joins with Kalmengo. The king of Gornath marries one of Kalmengo's daughters and assists them in fighting Kasas to destroy Kasas Like, what are you thinking? That didn't go well. Twelve years later, Gornath fell too. To <laughs> I forget if it was the same call or is the next call to take over Kalmoro and the Dothraki wife of that king just killed him. It's just like, this guy's too weak. She despised him for his weakness and killed him. It was like what he grit said. Like, what if your husband is abusive and weak or whatever? like like, well, kill him in his sleep. This I one may of- not have waited for him to be asleep. She may have just walked up. and was like, Bleh.
2: yeah, <laughs> I kind of think of Viserys here. Oh, you know, yeah, like a, a king, you know, killed for his, his weakness by the Dithraki when they presumably had an alliance.
0: I'm making stupid decisions. You're right. Yeah. Alliance with Dithraqi. the Dithraki. Great, Great. Yeah. parallel. Yeah. Good call. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that. And, and here's how it proceeded after, yes, yeah, So 12 years after Kasath, Gornath fell. And then here's how it went from there. Hint, not well. Mm-hmm. Quote.
2: One by one, the remaining cities of the tall men were overwhelmed and destroyed, leaving only ruins and ashes to mark where their proud towers once stood. For scholars and students of history, the fall of Salosh by the Silver Shore was especially tragic. For when that city of scholars burned, its great library was not spared. And most of the history of the tall men and the peoples who had gone before them were lost for all time. Kith and Hornoth soon followed, destroyed by rival calls, each of whom sought to outdo the other in savagery.
0: So the Sarnori cities tried to outdo each other in glory and wealth, which made their fall all the greater as the calls tried to outdo each other in savagery and destroying them. Imagine the literal fall of all those tall towers, for example. Like they were brought down, they collapsed, and think of how big they were and just the spectacle of that. The Drosvaki probably really enjoyed it. Uh, try not to think about that with Old Town and on again. Keep going back to that. <laughs> it's like the tower, the Old Town <laughs> Citadel collapsing or something, or the high tower collapsing. Like, yikes. Uh, we have an example of a tower falling that we've seen. It's not a huge tower, but the Tower of the Hand was brought down by Cersei. And, um, That was, you know, maybe a little foreshadowing for other towers. Who knows? You you mentioned, why don't they just stay inside? Why don't they just stay behind their walls? Well, for one thing, it's cowardly. It looks cowardly. It looks bad for warrior culture. They would be like, no, we got to go face the enemy. It's also not as normal as we might think. Pericles did this in the Peloponnesian War. He was like, we can't beat the Spartans on land. We just can't. They're just going to beat us if we fight them face to face. So we're not going to. We're going to, Athens has really tall walls. If they want to go out there and wreck all our farms, let them. We'll go hit them where they're not. We'll go take our ships and hit them where they're not. And it was working for a while, but people got mad at Pericles because they didn't, some people didn't like it. And then the plague hit Athens and staying inside was, became a really bad idea. Pericles died of the plague. So that didn't, it didn't end up working, but it was a workable strategy. It just went belly up because of the plague and other things.
1: Yeah, it may have worked. You're being results oriented because of other factors. Absolutely. It the could have, worked. it might have been sound. It could have worked, yeah. yeah.
0: The Fabian strategy versus Hannibal. It was a, Romans kept fighting Hannibal and he kept beating them. So eventually the Fabian strategy was to not fight him, just to not meet him in the field. It was very controversial. The Romans were like, what? We always march and face our en- uh, enemies head on. So for a while, his sub commanders were like, they were so angry. They were like, get him, attack him. And he's like, nope, nope, we're not doing that. And eventually they started to get in line and follow his lead because they saw that it was working.
1: <laughs> it's not like he didn't do anything. He was attacking their supply lines. Yes. He was using guerrilla warfare, you know, basically.
0: Hannibal was going around f- taking cities and flipping them to Carthage, and Fabian would just follow behind him and flip those cities back. Just, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Hannibal's farther away from resupply and support. And so he They wore him down, yeah. Fabian is not. So they just it, it's just a matter of time before Fabians. In the meantime, the people the land are suffering yes right? their their towns are being destroyed farms, farms are being, are being destroyed yeah, no,
0: yeah, exactly. but
1: it, it sucks but it was the best the best option yeah it was like that in big it picture. required
0: that patience it required keeping the impatient people from getting you know uprising or whatever but yeah and if we have things like the city of caravans like they trade depending on trade i mean they could still do river trade i assume but if you got those aren't caravans right so they need it's it rely their income relies on being able to go out and Send out caravans. The dithraki are destroying their caravans. Well, that's not sustainable. But Mardosh, the unconquerable, did do this. They were like, okay, well, all the other cities met them in the field. That didn't work. Let's try something else. They held out for six years under siege. Began starving. They charged out. They killed all their own families, kind of like the shave says he would do if, if Danny's armies are beaten and the slavers are going to take over again. He's like, well, I'll just kill my own family, not let them be enslaved, and then try to kill as many of them before they kill me. This is what they did. They killed all their own families so they wouldn't be enslaved and then charged out the gate and just died fighting, killing, trying to take as many Titraki as they could. The Titraki renamed the city the City of the Blood Charge. It's one of the few names that was somewhat like not denigrating. (laughs) You know, they were like, okay, these guys, they were warriors here. So Mardash did live up to its name, even though they lost. Those guys showed courage. They were still greedy and corrupt, probably like a lot of the other Cities, but that was that. Nina writes: Compare Danny's forces facing the Slavery army to dance the dragons, and into the winds of winter. Barristan counsels Danny to bring battle to her enemies on a field of his own choosing instead of starving during an extended siege. Remember, he's he's in that position, and they're having plague inside the city, so it's it's kind of similar to what we said with Pericles, where. Maybe it's better to wait, but not if there's plague, <laughs> you know, stuff like we got to take our chances now to, to attack and break the siege and, you know, get some fresh water and stuff in here. The Sarnori, Nina says, the Sarnori enjoyed both a huge numerical advantage and believed they enjoyed a personnel advantage. So that's another thing that's important to note. The Dothraki were actually a smaller army, even with four khalasars merged together, the Sarnori outnumbered them. Which is, again, a, a reminder of the comparison to Persia, where Alexander's army was way smaller than the Persian Empire that he was invading. The armies that he faced sometimes were like five times larger than his. But his men were just better, better led. They weren't slaves. A lot of these were slave soldiers that, you know, weren't, didn't have morale. Heavier armor, better heavier cavalry. Just a lot of, a lot of superiority in terms of the individual
1: troops. Better train, better equip, better morale. Yeah, better everything, yeah, pretty much. Each one of those is like two to one, three to one, four to one. You can still win. Yeah, like
0: Alexander leads his men charging directly at their king and that king runs away. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Who's the stronger? (laughs) All right. The king ran away. Everybody's like, okay, well, if he's running away, aren't we going to run away too? Well, yes, they all started running away. (laughs) 200,000 of them or something. (laughs) So the last high king... Mazor Alexi was like, all right, y'all, finally, we need to put an end to this. Let's gather a huge army at the capital of Sarnath. Everybody come, meet beneath the walls, and then let's go fight them. And, but again, he's, let's fight them out in the field. It was a battle called the Field of Crows. We'll go into greater detail of the, about the Field of Crows when we do the Tithraki episode, because it was, it was their tactics that were more interesting. Basically, Mazor Alexi fell into a trap, the kind of trap that we've seen Throughout history, so many times, people fall for the feigned route, basically. And Nina says, it reminds me of the legends of Constantine Eleventh, who supposedly died during the last fighting during the conquest of Constantinople. Yeah, kind of similar. Mazor Alexi dies himself, along with several other kings on the battlefield. The aftermath was predictable. Quote.
1: Berefted defenders, Sarnath of the Tall Towers fell to Loso the Lame less than a fortnight later. Not even the palace with a thousand rooms was spared when the Kaloso put the city to the torch. The remaining cities of the grasslands followed one by one as the century of blood drew to its close.
0: And so does our episode. In the end, it can almost be said that the people of Sarnor were destroyed by that which they once were. Their ancestors were not terribly dissimilar to the Nothraki, living in conditions that were similar. Similar reverence for nature, horse people, grasslands, lake is the cradle of their civilization. The Dothraki believe they all come from the the lake beneath the mother of mountains. Like the first Dothraki came out of the lake riding a horse. (laughs) By the time that the Dothraki got to the city of Saris, which remember, Sar East, Southwest, they destroyed that as well. But most of the people had fled. They were like, there's no way, there's no hope. They They just disappeared. They ran away to various places, scattered, which had a similar effect of... Basically dispersing the culture of the Sarnori so much that there's almost nothing left, which leads to our final quote, one that tells us the state of Sarnor in current times.
2: Only in Soth do men still name themselves Tagay's Fen. Fewer than 20,000 remain when once the tall men numbered in the millions. Only there are the hundred gods of the kingdom of Sarnor still worshipped. The bronze and marble likenesses that once adorned the streets and temples of the tall men now lean crookedly, overgrown by weeds along the grassy ways of Vase Dothrak, the sacred city of the horse lords.
0: Mm. That's a great outro quote, isn't it? Good job, George. <laughs> That's some good writing there, George. Some other specific details of the fall of Saranori cities uh, we'll have when we talk about the Dothraki because, of course, they were the main target of them. We will do a Dothraki episode soon enough, especially if you join your fellow Westorians in voting for them in the next poll and for whatever other topics you want to see in future episodes of Valar Rereadus. I guess you could say the episode is inevitable. The episode is inevitable as they are. Mm -hmm. This Dornish game says, and on the other side of the narrow sea, around the same time as Viserys' name, Kyle Regat, you also have Robert riding south to King's Landing on his horse, cursing Cersei's wheelhouse. <laughs> Great point. Yeah, he's that damnable wheelhouse. If I have to stop on it one more time, he's so <laughs> mad. Yeah. It's <laughs> a fantastic catch. Our trivia question remember, it was the free folk of the frozen shore ride chariots made primarily from the bones of what animal?
2: Walrus.
0: walrus, Cuckoo. And some people
2: choose. did get that in the chat. Cool. Um, people guessed seal, whales. That mm.
1: for sure was chipmunk. But
2: <laughs> the first person to get it was uh, Arson Whitebread, who guessed walrus, but also Lynn Neal, Archmaester Emma, Dornstein. a bunch of people guessed walrus.
1: Cool.
0: Yeah. I, I, I figure, I think some of the questions have maybe been a notch too hard. I tried to make it slightly easier. This is still <laughs> a tough question. That's a tough one, but... Um, trying to find my way, you know. Uh-huh. I'm glad no one guessed cat. Uh-huh. By the way.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm glad that as well. So we mentioned our "When Giants Roamed" episode, and we mentioned our Nymeria series, somewhat indirectly by talking about the Roinar quite a bit. But the Nymeria, especially the first Nymeria episode, is all about the cities of the Rhoyne, the lead up to them leaving Mother Rhoyne. That is the name of the episode, so I recommend that one as well for related topics. It's not a normal episode. It was a panel Shay and I did. Okay, it comes Pont up, but
2: it's on. It's a yeah, it's on. I, when I Google it, it comes up on YouTube and on on podcast form. Okay,
0: so you don't need to be a patron to see that one. It's yeah, about, it's just, it's like yeah, it five just a, minutes. It's,
2: yeah, it's a panel, so yeah, it's short, it's forty minutes. You know, but we
0: had like quotes and yeah, some good discussion and some good questions that people came from the audience. Yeah, but
2: we talk a lot about um the uh, this, about you know the idea of these 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 high figures which we touched on here like, you know and all that and Sarnor. So we've got. Jet. Oh, we do have Jet today. (laughs) Yay.
0: So in the online with these kitties here, this because this cat is all black
2: named Jet. Jet said goodbye already.
0: We are feeding an all black cat stray that comes to our house and comes to the backyard fairly often. I, I feed them almost every day. And our friend Joe, who is occasionally in the chat, he comes to the game stream sometimes. He's been my friend for a super long time, over 20 years. I was the best man in his wedding. He is currently walking the Appalachian Trail. That might ring a bell. I think I've mentioned that on the show. His wife...
2: taking him six months to do it. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's not like he's taking him longer, but that's how long it takes to do it. <laughs> yeah. He
0: started on his 50th birthday, and he's going all the way. Yeah, so it's going to take six months. You're right so that was that was march 15th so it's it's, he's a month in now and it's Uh cool so his wife took in a stray cat while he's been gone and the cat was pregnant and the cat has had three kittens very recently and one of them is all black one of them is is like gray brown and one of them is a tuxedo cat and i'm excited to see their journey she's documenting it really well like with their weights and everything so maybe i'll share that with you all as well every once in a while how those little three kittens are doing
1: she must have them very recently in the past week right
0: Yes, their eyes just
1: opened two days yeah. ago. <laughs>
0: yeah. She came home, it was amazing. She came home and they were, had been born and the mother had cleaned them all up and everything. It was like all the mess was gone and everything. It was just like she came home and there's three kittens just nursing, like all cleaned up. Was like, oh, wow, good job, mom. I mean, if some cats <laughs> have eight kittens, which three is a little more manageable.
1: <laughs> so, yeah.
0: <laughs> anyway, we love cats. <laughs> that's, the, that's the bottom line here. <laughs> They've made it into our show regularly, both in in discussion form and visual form. So pet your cats for us And we'll say thanks to everyone who does that Yeah. So again, shout out to TV Tropes For helping me out with some of the research today Some of the notes were really helpful Thanks to anyone who came live To support the live stream experience We love having you all here for that It's great to engage with live discussion Adding comments, answering the trivia question It's really fun And I appreciate y'all's presence. Thanks to Nina for her great takes, lots of great notes, lots of great research. Thanks to you all who have signed up on Patreon to make this financially feasible for all of us. It is a blessing uh, and a privilege to be able to do this for a living. Thanks to Joey, Jesse, and Kevin for our music. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for the video intro and the maps behind, which were particularly useful as always. And thanks to our mods on our various social media platforms who are helping run things. Particular thanks to Laura for helping me run the uh, AMA we did in Facebook last week. Um, so that's another reason to join our Facebook group for AMAs and stuff like that. And Sean, what do you have something to say?
1: I'm just excited to meet people at Ice and FireCon. Yeah. It's coming right up. I hope you guys are all excited. And also I'm hoping to like piece together names and faces. That, I don't know. There's probably some people who I know, but I won't recognize you. You know. Mm-hmm. So anyway, be please. Uh, I'm approachable. come say hi to me. Sean I'll, is approachable. Hopefully, I'll remember who you are, and we can interact, and it'll bring the community closer together. Yeah. yeah. You know
2: what event I particularly recommend? I don't know if you've done it before, Sean. Is there's the icebreakers round where um, at the con uh, they have two different ones. One is in the morning. I won't be at that one, but one is in the afternoon, and it's just they, they do games like. Uh, Kind of like the, in the office, you know, where you put like something on your forehead and then you have to guess like <laughs> what character you are. And you, you meet people that way.
1: My, my friend Eric, the one that made a movie, he actually has a, another movie that he's made that's coming out just because of COVID and everything, it couldn't get it distributed. I mean, it's like an indie horror movie anyway, but it's it's coming out on DVD next week. Oh. So he's got a lot of activity going on with that. But he wants to cover Better Call Saul with me. He has like a game stream that he does and it's small. And he does it, it I mean, it's like a weird thing. He has like this anime Fox persona. <laughs> he does it on Twitch or whatever. And But he wants me to come on and talk about Better Call Saul. I'll see how it goes. Okay, cool. Well,
0: Stay, stay tuned for that, folks. We'll try to let you know what Sean's up to. Next time, we'll not next, next, time. next Sunday, yes. but we will yeah. post that. Like I said, I will post the uh, chapter. The chapter will uh, oh. be awesome. See all the great work done by the engineer and the great voice actors who participated.
2: Alt Shift X is the narrator Alt-shift-x for it. Alt Shift
0: X is the narrator. How cool is mm-hmm. that? Yeah. <laughs> so, folks, look out for that, and we'll see you soon for more Velar Rereadus.